and welcome to Wanda's Picks, a black arts and cultural program of the African Sisters Media Network. And that was Zion Trinity singing opening prayer to the African deity, Eshu Legba, a deity that lets us know that we always have choices. We are never victims, so we should pause, take a breath, and exercise our options because there are many if we just pause and think about it for a moment. And we are so excited to have on the air um, two organizers of an event this weekend, the Alchemy of Black Manhood, hosted by the Urban Healers, uh, again, uh, Saturday, Jan- July 27th from 1 to 4 at the Oakland LBGTQ Community Center. And um, so we're happy to have um, Butterfly Williams back to talk about that with Michael Amsa. Um, and, uh, yeah, maybe before I read your bios, you could tell us a little bit about what is the alchemy of black manhood? I like that name because you're an alchemist, right? Butterfly, you talk about uh, that a whole lot. You know, sort of like staring and staring and looking your poses, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, I am really big um, on, on on alchemy. Um, a lot of people don't know that alchemy um, uh, is literally the word is literally Arabic for from the black land. Uh, and the black land that uh, they're talking about is ancient Egypt. So um, alchemy, you know, originally came from ancient Egypt, uh, you know, nor- northern Africa. Uh, so it's, it's indigenous to Africa. Uh, and the, the art and science, the transformation is, is something that black folk um, have been practicing for a very, very long time. Uh, so now here we are in the era of Me Too, uh, the women's community has, has made it known that, you know, men need to be uh, uh, better about uh, very serious matters like sexual consent uh, and relationships uh, in general. Um, so uh, the guys at Urban Healers, which is an Oakland-based uh, uh, group that initiates men into healthy masculinity, uh, thought, uh, you know, it's about time for uh, – the same gender loving uh, black men's community uh, to take a look uh, at this issue uh, and what it means for us. So, we've come up with an event called The Alchemy of Manhood, a celebration of healthy masculinity for same gender loving GBTQ black men. Uh, and as you said, it's going to be happening at the Oakland LGBTQ Community Center this Saturday, July 27th. 
starting at 1 p.m. Right, right. Yeah. So, Michael, um, you are um, Hello. Uh, MBA, PCC. I don't know what PCC stands for. What is PCC? PCC is a professional certified coach uh, through the International Coaching Federation. And so, yeah, I'm uh, what I do every day is really uh, executive coaching in, in companies. Mm-hmm. You help people yeah. sort of realize their their dreams and help them sort of actualize yeah. what they, their potential. Hmm. Yeah, so it's, it is like being a, a corporate therapist where you're really focused on helping people, as you said, Wanda, develop, grow, tap into potential. Um, and I work uh, with individuals, but also with uh, intact teams, um, working on, you know, the system of the team and the, the, the group dynamic of the team. Um because as you know, when people get together, it's uh, sometimes difficult, even really smart people. <laughs> so uh, that's what mm-hmm. I do. <laughs> wow, yeah, yeah. And and you are also a Ghanaian-American obsessed, those yeah. are your words, with themes of belonging, <laughs> narratives of place and identity, exile and homegoing, and with how we yeah. can use our bodies as anchor and compass as well as place of joy. Oh, that's so beautiful. Yeah. Um, you run a boutique organizational development form, firm, and yeah. a group uh, based in San Francisco, which works, as you mentioned, with companies and organizations globally in the areas of organizational and team effectiveness, learning and development, and executive coaching. And you're writing an autobiographical yeah. memoir with focuses yeah. on growing up same gender loving and African. So people can visit you on yeah. LinkedIn. Your last name is spelled A N S A, and um, and we were talking before we went on the air about the year return. Um, yeah, uh, that the Ghanaian government is inviting people, Africans in the diaspora, those that have been in the diaspora for centuries, you know, to come back home. And uh, yeah. all this year, and particularly around Panafest, which is going on this month, and there also seems like Ghana always has um, festivals going on. There's stuff happening in yes. August, <laughs> and like all all the time, there's great stuff happening as <laughs> far as celebratory, yeah. which is really cool. Yeah, it's uh, it's yeah. a wonderful initiative by our president and uh, the government of Ghana, and uh, really, you know, I'm no spokesperson for them, but uh, I think this is. Um, very good for the Ghanaian people as well, um, because growing up, we didn't learn a lot about what happened in the diaspora and um, actually, personally speaking, even slave trade. It was something that was, you know, a chapter in our high school history books, but we didn't, we weren't immersed in it. And um, I think this is an attempt to reconcile some of that for us to really learn about who's in the diaspora and how we can actually come together as people of African descent. Um, and as well for African-Americans, of course, it's, it's going back and um, reconnecting with some of that richness uh, and also their heritage, even if you don't know exactly where your family uh, roots are from. It, uh, I love being in Africa. I love being African. Uh, and um, I, I certainly <laughs> think everybody should um, share in that. So uh, very exciting. Mm-hmm. If you get a chance to go, people, please go. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, Uganda is a really wonderful country, um, and um, I've been there a couple of times. Last year I was there, and I got a chance to um, see a few of the, the uh, I guess, historic sites, you know, um, in, um, in Accra, you know, the Du Bois Center, yeah. and uh, where um, uh, President Nkrumah, um, you know, is... Mm-hmm. Um, is laid to rest. Yeah. That's really awesome. And uh, and then you know visiting Kumasi, you know where oh wow the Asante King <laughs> is, and um and then going up to uh, Tamale for a little bit, you know, because there's a lot of great stuff up there in the north. And then you did it going, all, you know, to visit the castles. <laughs> yeah, then yeah, um, and then after that, last year I went I went to Nigeria for the first time. <laughs> Oh my goodness! Wow, you've done it. Yeah, it was it was busy. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot. And and yeah, I I love all those places you mentioned. Grew up in Kumasi myself, and um, oh, although you did. I'm not, oh my god, yeah, I grew up in Kumasi and uh, love being there. It's like this quiet ish uh, uh, place that doesn't change a lot where the food is great mm-hmm. and uh, the people are, the market and the the trade and the artistic communities and the Ashanti people who are uh, native to that region are just vibrant and commercial and uh, beautiful. So uh, that's where we grew up. Um, and um, mm-hmm. I left, of course, um, in my early 20s, very early 20s, and been here, mm-hmm. um, I think, almost 30 years. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, this is like definitely <laughs> your home. <laughs> A long time. Yeah. So, oh, wow. yeah, the year yeah, of the return. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, of course, you know, I went to visit, um, you know, the uh, the slave dungeons, um, uh, you know, the, the, mm. the ones that are more well-known, um, you know, Cape Coast and uh, – and Almina, uh, mm-hmm. slave dungeon, and uh, those yeah. are always, you know, really, really hard things to do um, and recover from. Because you think about our ancestors and, and what they suffered. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and and what we did when nothing, we visited last year is. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I just wanted to mention what we did last year, and we're going to continue talking about the alchemy of manhood, um, <laughs> was to, uh, we were in a poetry exchange, and so we um, we had been sending poems back and forth uh, to West Africa, hmm. um, you know, as pen pals, and so we were able oh, to beautiful. meet uh, the poets that we had been communicating with. So it was a real, real nice sort of return mm. in that wow. we were anchored with these words to a person who was sending these words like, you know, uh, like a rope across the waters to us. And so it was really beautiful. And I was really surprised, though, that, um, you know, that slavery and the enslavement of of African people was just a little chapter, just the way it is here. It was kind of interesting, Um, (laughs) you know, that having the artifacts right there, it would still just be a Mm. chapter in a book. And and people would like to say, oh, it didn't really happen. Which is kind of interesting. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's it's yeah. Wanda, it's a longer conversation, but yeah, I think as Africans, we were also well, we were colonized first of all, and um, 
uh, taught to forget about that part of our past and our people who uh, were sent away. And um, I think it was very institutionalized for the African to forget his past and uh, his loved ones who were sent away. And so it's not until recent history that many of us are reclaiming that, even on the continent, right, that this is something that was very real and still impacts us, uh, even those of us who stayed, so so to speak. Um, mm-hmm. So it's, it's, that's another show. <laughs> but um, yeah, yeah, I'm glad yeah, you were there. Yeah, we'll definitely um, have to continue the conversation. And Butterfly, it's just so, so cool to have you on again. Um, you know, you're a cultural alchemist who transforms lives through performance art, psychology research, um, and community activism. And you are the lead singer and lyricist for Olakun a psychedelic power pop band whose debut album, Survival Kit, is available on iTunes, CD Baby, and Spotify. And your band is performing live at the 40th anniversary of the Somars Cultural Center in San Francisco this August. Wow, that is so amazing. That wonderful institution has is 40 years old this year. That is amazing. Absolutely. It is such They've a done beautiful so much to yeah. uh, you know, promote the arts in San Francisco. Yeah. Very mm-hmm. excited about that. Yeah, um, yeah. Is, also, is there a website that people could visit to, you know, stay abreast of what, what your band is up to? Sure. Alokun Music, that's O-L-O-K-U-N uh, music.com. Uh, all of our stuff is up there. You can check out videos. Uh, you can get to Spotify. Um, you can uh, read bios. You can learn all about us. <laughs> right, right. You were getting ready to say something. Um, <laughs> uh, just that, um, you know, I, I'm super uh, excited to be doing the the um, Alchemy of, of Manhood event. Um, I think the conversation mm-hmm. with, with Michael about his Ghanaian heritage was uh, just a really great context um, for this event uh, because mm-hmm. I, I think one of the uh, effects of, um, you know, colonization uh, as African-Americans, you know, have experienced it, um, you know, has been a, a, a drastic re-altering of what we, uh, people of African descent, um, a, a, a drastic altering of how we think about, you know, manhood um, and how mm-hmm. that has been, uh, the American experience here, um, I think, has really toughened us. Uh, you know, as men, uh, and I think we're realizing uh, that we need to become more more vulnerable uh, in order to have richer, uh, more fulfilling lives. Uh, we need to be able to, you know, communicate um, about our emotions, uh, you know, more openly. Um, and so it's really interesting, uh, you know, that this event, I think, you know, provides an opportunity uh, on one hand, uh, to, uh, you know, reclaim our African heritage. Uh, we'll have uh, Blackberry. Uh, he's a, a well-known um, singer-songwriter from the community uh, who was a uh, pioneer in the gay men's music movement. Uh, he also happens to have a very deep love for African-centered spiritual traditions, uh, and he'll be um, opening the event uh, with the libation. Uh, as well as, uh, you know, sharing his wisdom as an elder in the community. 
uh, about, you know, um, loving and living uh, and creating uh, in the same gender-loving black male uh, community. Um, there's an interesting blending, I think, of reclaiming African heritage uh, while also uh, coming to terms with what it means to be a man uh, in today's society for same gender-loving uh, black men. So um, I'm really exciting. I'm really excited to be uh, sharing, uh, you know, the work of the band, uh, you know, in the context uh, of all of that. Uh, the band is actually named after the Orisha of the Ocean Depth. Uh, so uh, we like to uh, sing about the most, you know, compelling, deepest issues, uh, and we hope to make the world a safer place uh, for uh, uh, people of all genders and uh, races to, uh, you know, come to terms with, with the deepest issues uh, in our lives. Uh, but the Alchemy of Manhood uh, event this weekend uh, is by, about, and for uh, same gender-loving uh, black men. Uh, so we're looking to explore issues of healthy masculinity uh, and using uh, very creative means, uh, primarily music, uh, but, but also, you know, poetry and whatever other creative skills uh, the, the men attending the event have to um, explore uh, issues of communication, uh, consent, uh, connection, uh, all of the things that can help us live more fulfilling lives and uh, have, you know, better uh, relationships, uh, you know, as men in, in today's uh, complex uh, social environment. Mm -hmm. Right, right, yeah. And and you <clears throat> you have nearly 30 years of cultural organizing experience, including collaborations with the San Francisco AIDS Foundation, uh, the Bayview Association for Youth, um, Community Housing Partnership, Communities United Against Violence, West Harlem Environmental Action, Mix New York City, Men of All Colors Together, Outlook Theater, Guy Writers, and the Black Psychology hmm. Project. And um, you've been recently, recently featured in the San Francisco Chronicle. And you are one of the core members um, uh, of Urban Healers, as is uh, Michael. And so I was wondering um, if both of you all could reflect a little bit on, so what is healthy masculinity? Uh, for me, uh, it has to do with issues of, of communication, uh, of, you know, mm -hmm. becoming more aware of your emotions and then being able to, uh, you know, express those. Uh, with people who are, um, you know, meaningful um, to you. Um, and then it also has to do, you know, it, when, it, when it comes to relationships and, and sexuality, um, you know, establishing consent um, for, you know, how you would like to enjoy your, your sensuality, um, you know, with, with other people. Uh, and then finally, um, connection. Um, I think a major challenge for same gender loving black men uh, is, is isolation, uh, you know, being um, separated, um, uh, you know, from other same gender-loving uh, uh, black men, uh, but then also, you know, maybe other people in, in, in general, uh, you know, because of, um, uh, you know, because of, of racism, both internalized um, and, and external, um, you know, needing to come to grips with barriers both inside yourself uh, and outside of yourself that may make it difficult 
um, for same-gender loving black men to, um, you know, reach out um, to, to other people. Um, you know, there are so many challenges that, that come up uh, for same-gender loving black men, you know, uh, whether it's coming out or, um, uh, you know, dealing with, uh, you know, religious traditions that may not be, you know, as accepting, uh, you know, of your sexuality um, as you would like or, you know, dealing with parents and, you know, and other uh, relatives, you know, who may not understand you, uh, those can create, um, uh, you know, insecurities uh, and fears uh, that are, are perfectly legitimate, uh, but then also, um, you know, may inhibit us uh, from, you know, uh, uh, communicating with others uh, in the way that we would like to uh, in order to achieve the kind of relationship um, that we would like. Um, so part of what we're hoping to um, accomplish uh, with the event uh, this, this weekend uh, is to create a, a safe and supportive atmosphere um, for people to, uh, you know, begin relating uh, about these serious issues uh, in a way that is um, uh, creative uh, and deep uh, and, and allows us to begin figuring out um, you know, uh, good practices uh, for communication uh, and consent and, and connection. Um, uh, but, I, you know, but I also want to say is, you know, while communication and consent and connection are, are touchstones for uh, healthy masculinity, um, uh, I, I think healthy masculinity is, is something that we're all really kind of inventing uh, together. I, I don't think there's any one answer to, you know, what that might be. I, I think mm -hmm. we're going to discover collectively, um, uh, you know, what that means uh, for us. Uh, part of the event, uh, the, the event is going to be offering lots of different things, um, you know, a dance party, uh, elder wisdom from Blackberry. Um, I'll be facilitating an alchemical art-making process uh, where people can, uh, you know, draw or, you know, sing or write poetry uh, according to the seven stages of alchemy. Uh, and they'll take, uh, that helps them to take seven different uh, looks uh, at whatever particular issue uh, they would like to transform. Um, uh, and then we're closing out with a, uh, a psychedelic funk music set uh, by the wonderful four-man band um, OMB. Uh, led by lead singer Blue Buddha. Um, so we're going to be using, you know, creativity to express ourselves um, and discover new things about healthy masculinity. So, you know, the event isn't really about speechifying or, or giving a big lecture uh, about um, healthy masculinity. It's really about sourcing the inner wisdom and collective wisdom uh, of the group there uh, to discover something new for ourselves. Wow, sounds like some fabulous. Um, so, Michael, um, your take on uh, yeah. healthy masculinity and um, and um, as um, Butterfly was saying that it's a fluid process, you know, um, with regards yeah. to what it is and what it looks like because, you know, it's both personal and communal, the, the interpretation yeah. of this term. But I was wondering about, you know, sort of like, growing up and you know the men around you and and then yeah. you're deciding to take this and not take that yeah yeah <laughs> yeah I wanted to talk well, a little bit about, I... about your <laughs> yeah 
Yeah. That is a whole other 30 minutes, but I will try to make this uh, quick. It, it's also um, part of what I'm writing about in my, my uh, autobiography. Mm. Um, one mm. of, um, I would add to Butterfly's um, point around this. Um, for me, healthy masculinity speaks to the very issue of identity as um, mm. black men of other who are um, same gender loving and and, and, and defining who we are um, in terms of the masculine, right? Or on the spectrum, whatever, the, you know, the spectrum from masculine to, to feminine, if you will. Um, masculine identity has been defined, for me anyway, growing up through a very heterosexist lens, right? So being a man growing up in Africa was really around these very, um, for me anyway, personally, hyper-masculine, hyper-masculine and um, heterosexist notions of what that was. And so for me, uh, without having adequate role models growing up around what it meant to be same gender loving, um, I was lost. And, and healthy masculinity for me has been the journey towards um, self-love, um, acceptance and uh, a kind of courage to define for myself uh, what that is and to engage with other men in community uh, like myself. And uh, I have to say for same gender loving black men, um, this has been a challenge at times uh, because while we've been good at finding social venues uh, sometimes in some cities. We haven't been as good in finding um, uh, community-based, uh, I would call them psycho-spiritual um, uh, communities that, that help us grow as black men who are same gender loving. And so for me, healthy masculinity is about uh, creating communities that give us the courage to define together um, what the masculine is. And, and so that's, that's what I'm thinking. Mm, right, right. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Sounds interesting. Sounds great. Um, so is this, <laughs> I could keep um, going. <laughs> is this like a, yeah, 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 definitely. Well, this is what you live, right? So, I mean, this is who you are. Exactly. Um, you're, you're both black men. <laughs> Yes, yes. Um, and 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 the way you present yourselves, you know, um, to the world, um, you know, you have no control over over how um, how other people come at you, depending on sort of their mm. um, how they've been packaged by society mm. and by their conditioning. Mm, right. Um, yeah. Yeah. And um, mm, yeah, it's um, I don't know. I, I don't live. I don't live your your truth. So, um, yeah, I, I can't even even attempt to, be, you know, to uh, to understand what it's like, you know, to walk uh, in America, particularly, um, you know, in in the presentation that that you are both, um, mm. you know, seen, you know, initially before you open your mouth, before anyone knows anything about you, it's so dangerous, right? Um, mm. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, yeah, and I was just wondering how that yeah. how that affects um, 
you know, how how you define yourself and how you can right. live your life. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, I, when you I think, think about freedom, uh, right? Michael, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right. Freedom to be yourself, right. Um, I think Michael made such a powerful point with, uh, you know, by raising the issue of, of self-love uh, because there is mm-hmm. no um, roadmap you know, for how to live your life uh, as a same gender loving, you know, black man. Uh, and uh, that can lead to, you know, lots of confusion <laughs> about who you are, mm. what you are, uh, who your community is, um, how you fit into, you know, not only your community, uh, but, you know, the other communities that might be, you know, surrounding yours and, and, and impacting yours. Um, mm. And with all that confusion out there, it can become very hard to um, value yourself, you know, and value your community uh, and value your heritage, you know, even. Um, So, uh, you know, when you're not given, um, I I mean, I think people in other identity positions might be given, might be more readily given uh, road markers as to how to be or, you know, where to fit in, uh, whereas, you know, we don't necessarily get uh, you know, the same kind of advice or, or guidance. Um, so then it becomes, um, you know, imperative that we find ways to love ourselves uh, and then hopefully, um, you know, out of cultivating that, uh, we learn how to cultivate others uh, and become a source of, mm. a, a source of strength uh, for other, uh, others. I think um, it, it's really imperative that same gender-loving black men uh, really take charge, you know, of their own culture. Uh, and part of that um, is, you know, reclaiming their African heritage, um, you know, as well. There are just so many brilliant, wonderful, beautiful, um, insightful uh, things that are associated, you know, with, with um, African traditions, uh, both cultural and spiritual uh, and even um, political, uh, and I think uh, you know we need to we need as same gender loving black men need to take another look um, at, at all of that uh, and question you know whether mainstream society is, is giving you know uh, those African traditions their 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 full due. Um, I mean, it's funny that we're living in a in a more globalized world um, now. Uh, you know, but I'm not sure, like, the curriculums of our educational institutions uh, have become fully globalized. Uh, you know, I'm not really sure that the media, you know, that we look at uh, has really become fully um, globalized. Um, and I think, you know, African traditions can be a really rich resource um, for um, uh, same-gender-loving uh, black men. Um, you know, there's been research um, out there that shows there's numerous um, African um, tribal societies that, you know, recognize um, homosexuality in one way or, or another. Um, so taking another look at the indigenous uh, cultures and traditions of Africa um, may very well prove to be a source of inspiration uh, for how um, uh, those of us who are living uh, in, um, you know, Western societies uh, can learn to better nurture ourselves uh, and our communities. Right. Wow. Wow. Mm. So is this the first um, such event, or have you all had others um, 
this series because um, <laughs> it seems like yeah, you know, once yeah. all these black men get together, you're going to want to, like, stay connected. Yeah, we've right, had a series right. of events this year. Um, uh, we, mm-hmm. we started with uh, an event uh, three months ago on sexual consent. Um, we, we had an event um, on um, power in the workplace. Um, we've had another for Latinx men and, and that community and uh, issues around uh, machismo and, and, you know, cultural, um, cultural strength uh, in, in, in mm-hmm. the larger context. And um, I'm actually hosting an event next month on uh, belonging, the theme of belonging uh, for men, uh, men who consider themselves other, uh, however they might define that. And I, I of course, come from uh, an immigrant um, global uh, man of many worlds perspective, and, and others will come from other perspectives. Um, so, yes, we, we, we're continuing the journey with events every month this year. Oh, excellent, excellent, super. And yeah. do you have a website? Myself? Yes. I I am in the middle of websites. This is a terrible thing to say on the air, but I, I'm in the middle of websites. However, if people want to um, know more about me, they can go to michaelansa.com. Um, that's www.michaelansa.com. And uh, that's sort of uh, uh, just a, an overview of my company and what I do and, and who I am. Mm-hmm. Okay, awesome, awesome. Well, hopefully <clears throat> this is a conversation that is to be continued. And uh, um, Butterfly, do you want to give the uh, details about um, the alchemy of black manhood once again? And do you want to do a shout-out to the other um, organizers, lead organizers, besides the two of you, because um, it looks like about five of you all together? That pulls this yeah, yeah, there's, um, there's, this particular there's iteration. Six yeah. Oh, six sure, months. sure. Uh, yeah, my, uh, Michael and I um, are uh, black gay men um, who are uh, core members of uh, Urban Healers. Uh, Urban Healers is led by a wonderful man by the name of Jewel Love, uh, and then also uh, Grinnell uh, Kana and um, uh, Daniel Rivera and um, Peter Parker. Uh, Parker. Um, are the other guys um, in the crew. Uh, and we do uh, monthly uh, r- uh, public uh, interactive rituals uh, to initiate men into healthy masculinity. Um, yeah, we're going to be doing a citywide um, ceremony uh, in, in September uh, in, in Oakland. Mm-hmm. So we're, looking, we're gearing up uh, uh, towards that as well as uh, Michael's event coming up uh, next month uh, for Men of Other and Belonging. Um, yes. So uh, the the um, uh, the the event this Saturday uh, is called the Alchemy of Manhood, a celebration of healthy masculinity for same gender loving LGBTQ Black men. It'll be happening at the um, Oakland LGBTQ Community Center, located at 3207 Lakeshore Avenue, um, at 1 p.m. Uh, the event will go through 4 p.m., but it's important for uh, people to uh, arrive early with the dancing shoes on. <laughs> and um, if, if you want, um, uh, it, it's an interactive ritual, so people are going to want to be there for all of it, uh, definitely. Um, and uh, mm-hmm. if you want more information about it, uh, you can definitely find us um, on Facebook. 
uh, just type in the alchemy of manhood. Um, alchemy is spelled A-L-C-H-E-M-Y, the alchemy of manhood, uh, and that'll, uh, you know, get you uh, right to our Facebook uh, event page. Uh, you can also look us up mm-hmm. on uh, Eventbrite uh, if you'd like. Yeah. Right, right. Well, hope you have a wonderful time this, this weekend. It sounds like it's going to be marvelous. And, uh, yeah, and uh, maybe you could help facilitate an alchemy of a black um, uh, womanhood, um, which would be Hey, cool. that, you know, um, that's a wonderful Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. Thank so maybe you so we much could, for could, having us know, on, Wanda. Pull together. Thanks for having us, yeah, Wanda. Yes. This is great. Oh, you're quite welcome. You're quite welcome. Um, and I look forward to uh, continuing the conversation, and, and I know you're going to have a wonderful time this weekend. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. Bring us back anytime. <laughs> yeah, thank <laughs> oh, you sure, so no much. Problem. And, yeah. and good luck on both of you all with your writing, um, you know, your, um, thank you. your memoir, Michael, and, and your um, your dissertation, um uh, butterfly, I'm just really looking forward to reading it. How close are you to publishing? <laughs> yeah. Well, um, as I was telling you earlier, Wanda, I just finished up the uh, data collection for the research study. Oh. Uh, I've been working okay. with um, uh, black, gay, bisexual, and non-binary um, uh, men uh, who are creative. Mm. Some a poet, a painter, um, a composer, uh, and a video uh, director. Uh, and we've been taking a mm-hmm. look at the relationship between um, ancient Egyptian mythology and the arts, sexuality, and black men. Uh, and I must say, yes, this is some very rich, um, juicy stuff. Uh, we've been coming to grips with the um, decolonization uh, of sexuality. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yes, I, I do think quite a few people will be uh, <laughs> uh, interested in, um, you know, what this uh, group of uh, artivists, uh, you know, has to say um, about that. So, um, yeah, I'm hoping to finish up the dissertation uh, within the next academic year. Uh, and then, yes, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I'll, I'll be giving some talks about it. I will certainly, uh, you know, come back on the show if you'll have me, Wanda, to uh, talk about that. Of course, I will. Uh, and <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Uh, so, yes, um, I'm looking forward to finishing that up. Still have quite a bit of work, uh, but I am, you know, towards the end of the Ph.D. process. So uh, definitely looking forward to sharing my findings with uh, people uh, when, when they're ready, definitely. All right, super. Thank you. All righty. Well, I know you have a lot of loose ends to tie up so that you'll be all ready to go on Saturday at 1 p.m., um, for the yes. Black Manhood, um, yeah, yes. hosted by the Urban Healers, July 27th, 1 to 4, at the Oakland Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Transgender, Queer Community Center, 3207 Lakeshore Avenue at Rand Avenue Entrance in Oakland. So it should be really awesome. Yes. <laughs> Thanks, okay. Thank right, Thanks Wanda. for the plug. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. <laughs> Peace and blessings. Okay, you too. Bye bye. Bye. So we are going to play um Robert Glasper's double booked butterfly. <clears throat> for butterfly. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
that was Butterflies um, by, oh my goodness, I just lost it completely. <laughs> Let me get that for you just a second. Um, computer's moving slower than, um, you know, yeah. So I will get you that information shortly. I don't know how I could forget. Just looking at the artist and just love his work and uh just lost it that quickly. Um hmm. Yeah. While I'm looking, I wanna let folks know that tonight the um uh, the film series at the Museum of the African Diaspora continues the Caribbean film series that Cornelius Moore, um, a director of California Newsreel, has curated. It continues and um, wasn't able to make it last week. I know it was phenomenal. Um, happy birthday, Shakuru. It was her birthday last week, the 17th. And we had a wonderful time helping her bring in her new uh, Earth calendar. But I'm really looking forward to tonight, and uh, and I think there might be maybe three more weeks of films, and so they start at six o'clock. And again, uh, they are highlighting the Caribbean diaspora in conjunction with um, with the current uh, exhibit, um, rum, uh, sugar. Um, let's see what's it. Um, <laughs> I am like drawing blanks on everything. I shouldn't. I shouldn't start talking before I have my notes in front of me. Um, <laughs> uh, the um, exhibit is is really awesome, um, and uh, at the Museum of the African Diaspora. And this particular um, series um, highlights the exhibit and. Um, and I look up Moad really quickly <laughs> because I am drawing blanks on everything uh, presently. Um, and so I'm going to look it up before I continue to talk uh, and have to, um, let's see. Uh, well, there's a new exhibit that just opened, uh, Everybody Loves the Sunshine. And um, and the Caribbean in Motion series, um, I think tonight... Um, is um double play uh is the name of the film that we're gonna be looking at and um and the exhibition um now on view is um besides the current the exhibit um it's coffee rum sugar and gold a post colonial paradox and that's through August eleventh you don't wanna miss it as well as uh, dignity images on Baby Hunter's point. Um, uh, still here, and so um, that's going to be really awesome. And you can visit moadsf.org, uh, and the film series is um, included in admission to the museum, so there's no extra price. And uh, yeah, um, just warmly, just in case the air conditioning is up a little bit too too high, because last time I went, I was freezing. Um, but other than that, it was, it was simply marvelous. And I um, want to also let you know about an event that's happening um, this Saturday. Um, so if you're not going to the um, 
the alchemy of black um, masculinity, um, if you're a woman, let's say, <laughs> you can attend uh, attend this uh, in San Francisco, and it is um, a celebration of the collective efforts of Fillmore Rising um, to save the Fillmore Heritage Center, and uh, that's this Saturday from noon to 3 p.m. in the Fillmore Mini, Mini Park at Fillmore and Turk Street. And there are going to be a lot of really wonderful performances. Uh, one of them is going to be with Darlene Roberts, who's a fabulous poet. And um, and there's going to be a DJ, DJ Reggie in the mix. And uh, Darlene Roberts and Sam Peoples are going to be doing something called Spirit of the Blues. And for more information, you can visit 415 eight five seven one one three six. Um and um and the Mime Troop uh celebrating its sixtieth anniversary is continuing um with free uh theater in the parks and uh, as you like it a new musical um uh the part of um San Francisco Shakespeare Festival it continues um uh this weekend and this weekend um uh, the company is in um, Cupertino Memorial Park Amphitheater in Stevens Creek Boulevard and Mary Avenue. And uh, the company will be back in San Francisco at the end of August. But it will be in uh, in the Bay Area diaspora, uh, Cupertino, Redwood City, um, for um, the next couple of weekends. And then again, it will be back at the end of end of August um, in San Francisco, beginning of 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 uh of September and through the fifteenth it will be um uh at the Presidio Main Post uh Graham Street and and then um it will be um at McLaren Park Jerry Garcia Amphitheater for the uh mid September concluding no, I missed it September through the end of September performances. So you can visit sfshakes.org. And then I was looking and I noticed that West Side Story um, Batco is has a production and is in collaboration with the high school, so that looks really interesting as well. So um, yeah, a lot of a lot of good stuff happening, and um, yeah, I'm gonna play a little bit more music while we uh, we gear up for our our um, uh, rebroadcast of a wonderful conversation with um, uh, James Imes, uh, who is the uh, playwright whose work, Kill, Move, Paradise, is being produced by Shotgun Players in conjunction with or association with Lorraine Hansberry Theater. Uh, and it's directed by Daryl V. Jones, who is the artistic acting artistic director at Lorraine Hansberry Theater. And this play continues through August 4th um, at um, at the Ashby stage right there on Martin Luther King Jr. Way in Ashby and, and Berkeley. So you don't want to miss that. So in the meantime, going to play a little bit of music while I get myself together here, and um, um, I'm going to play um, Amakela uh, Gaston's um, Hambone, really like that one. Mm. 
go queen Hambone, hambone, away you been Round the corner and back again mm-hmm. Hambone, hambone, where you wife oh, yeah. In the kitchen cooking rice A hambone, uh, hambone, hambone Give, give me hambone Give me some hambone well now, hambone, hambone, put them on your shoulder. Mm-hmm. If you get a pretty girl, I'll show you how to hold her. Mm-hmm. Hambone, hambone, where you been all around the world and back again? Hambone, 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 Since my sister wine got 
So that was I'm Michaela Gaston in Hambone. Um, wanted to also remind folks that this is the second weekend of the Barrier Area Playwrights Festival, and this is um, Amy Muller's um, end of her tenure as um, as artistic director. I think she said that she had she has had that position um, for 19 years or so, and some wonderful, wonderful art has come through uh, the program because of her wonderful leadership, and uh, there's some really, really great plays that are part of this season, so you don't want to miss that, and all of the plays are having stage readings at the um, Betrero stage um, on 18th Street in San Francisco, so you want to visit um, the area Playwrights Festival to make sure you don't miss any of these wonderful, wonderful works that are having their second iterations this week. Um, and um, I was just looking through some of the archives. I'm thinking, oh, I haven't listened to this interview with uh, Barry Shabaka Henley in a long time. Uh, he um, he uh, wrote a wonderful work called Mingus uh, Revisited, and um, um, it was it was uh, this this conversation happened quite a while ago, but it was a really wonderful one because he is such a connected um, brother, and um, the rich history in Bayview Hunters Point. I think that's where I suppose his stumping grounds. He and his his siblings, and so um, yeah. Um, so I'm going to play this particular interview. Uh, we'll see where that goes, and and then um, we're gonna we're gonna close out with um, the uh, probably have to do an excerpt of Kill Move Paradise conversation. You can catch the rest of it um, if you go into the archives. Um, it broadcast live last week on um, July 16th. So enjoy uh, uh, Barry Shabaka Henley um, and talking about Mingus Revisited. Super. Yeah, it's been a long time since we've spoken. I think the last time I saw you was at the um, uh, the um, uh, the um, Berkeley Rep. No, no, it was, it was the uh, carnival in San Francisco. And, and, yeah, I remember you. You had a movie that was a part of the uh, the um, uh, San Francisco Black Film Festival. Yeah, really wonderful right, film. Right. Yeah, yeah, uh, about sort of the community where you live and what's happening. I think around gentrification and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. What's the name of the film? Uh, the film is called Nine O Four O Four: A Neighborhood Changing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it's a documentary about uh, the Nine O Four O Four zip code for this particular neighborhood in Santa Monica, which used to be predominantly all African-American and Latino. And Mm -hmm. uh, the 10 freeway was one of the big movers of uh, that community out completely. And, you know, you look at Santa Monica now and the African-American population is minuscule. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, and, uh, yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's really, really, um, you know, the film that you made, you made, and and so did it have a theatrical run? Um, what happened with it? No, no, no. It uh, it played some festivals and um, it uh, got just a small bit of distribution, but nothing major. I mean, we we were hoping PBS or someone would do it, and mm-hmm. but it's still a chance. I mean, um, of course, we've all moved on to other projects, but it's something that. We keep coming back to them. People keep, uh, you know, they they show they show it at the Santa Monica Library periodically, and mm-hmm. and some uh, schools, uh, Santa Monica High, 
in a California history class that it's a part of the curriculum. Oh, that's great. Yeah, so it's uh, it's still it's still happening in many ways, but it, it's it's not uh, on a mainstream release or anything. But mm-hmm. you know, I think it's getting to the people that it needs to that need to see it. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, because it's it's happening. You know, it continues to happen. It just seems as if you know, on the 100th the centennial year of Marcus Garvey's uh, Universal Negro Improvement Association African Communities League, it seems like there's an all-out um, plan to just eliminate black people from the planet <laughs> well, yeah i mean i i think that um you know there are forces that exist uh and they always have and i'm sure they always will that uh are the impediment to good works of any kind you know mm-hmm. yeah yeah so. yeah i was just reading um about your your name you know shabaka is the name of a kushite pharaoh of nubia and egypt of the 25th dynasty of egypt i'm like whoa it's just like a, I'm speaking the royalty. It's like, oh, how <laughs> wonderful. Well, you know, I think part of it was just to sort of reclaim the fact that we're all royalty, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, we just have to acknowledge, recognize it, and, and embrace it that we've come from a legacy of beauty, greatness, and awesomeness that we have been uh, systematically made to forget. And uh, for me, it's a reminder, just having a name, a royal name reminds me of the royal heritage we all share, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, uh, the thought was really interesting that, you know, I was reading that uh, you were in Jitney um, uh, in 2000 um, off Broadway, and then you were a part of, um, I think it was a piano lesson here at, at Berkeley Rep, right, more recently? Uh, no, uh, Joe Turner. Joe Turner coming gone. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. I did yeah. piano lesson at Crossroads. Oh, you did? Nice, nice. Yeah. So what other August Wilson um, plays um, have you um, uh, been in? I think those are the only ones. Uh, piano okay. lesson at Crossroads. Uh, the uh, Joe Turner here. But the Jitney I did, I, I was with the production for four years. Oh, nice. Uh, Nice. We started out in Boston and mm-hmm. uh, Baltimore and Chicago and New York and Los Angeles and in mm-hmm. uh, New York we won every Off Broadway award <laughs> that was that can be given to a play in a company. Mm-hmm. Um, we uh, they actually the o, the OBs created a, an award for us uh, for best ensemble acting, mm, nice, um, nice. and we also in. 2001, 2002, mm-hmm. we won the British Tony for Best Play, which is the Olivier Award Whoa. for Jitney. Excellent. Um, my last performance of it was uh, here in San Francisco, actually. Oh, really? Um, to, yes, it was, 2002. Okay. Um, so I left the show to do a television series, and mm-hmm. um, that, you know, but it was a four-year period I was with that play. So mm-hmm. 1998 until 2002. Wow, that's amazing. So, uh, what character did you portray? I played uh, the character of Oh, the the peacekeeper. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the Korean War vet. That's right. Oh, nice, nice. Yeah, yeah, because the uh, multi-ethnic theater um, on Golf Street just closed at the end. They did August in August. And, And that play is such a a black male ensemble piece. It's just so beautiful, those different stories and the interactions. 
between the characters. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I remember one of Chicago, uh, we did in Chicago summer of 99, and uh, we were there, and this woman said, you know, I said, well, what do you think it was? She said, you know, it's like, uh, she said, it's like sitting in an old Cadillac. That, that play was just a comfortable, beautiful, just relaxed evening in the theater with drama and comedy beyond compare, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I remember um, bringing my children to uh, uh, to the outdoor theater in Berkeley when um, uh, Cal Shakes was in Berkeley, and we see you in all those plays. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, I, they, I, I think I was in, it was either the last or second to last season that they did it before they moved to uh, Orinda. Yeah, days. yeah, it was nice over there. I forgot the name of the park, but it was nice. <laughs> Over there yeah. at that outdoor space, um, yeah, and uh, and then um, you know you've also you know had a a tenure with the San Francisco Mime Troupe, which is just a really oh, yeah. phenomenal company, and and then I was reading that you know your your roots go back to um, to Black Rep with uh, with Nora Vaughn, Miss Nora Vaughn. Oh, uh, even before I was oh. actually I worked with a company that doesn't even exist anymore called. Uh, West Coast Black Repertory Theater. Oh. And uh, it was uh, run by uh, these two Stanford professors, mm-hmm. uh, John Cochran and, um, oh, my God, Sandy Richards, mm-hmm. uh, who, last time I talked to Sandy, she was uh, Dr. Sandy Richards out in Chicago. When we did Jitney in Chicago, uh, she brought her class to see it. And, oh, nice. <laughs> um, Back in 1972, 73, mm-hmm. I uh, was working with the West Coast Black Repertory Theater. Nice, nice, yeah, yeah. yeah. So you uh, you grew up in San Francisco. You were born in New Orleans, Louisiana. Is is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you got you got siblings that are doing some great things still in the San Francisco Bay Area. Because I met some of them at the um, <laughs> at the play. We were sitting next to each other uh, at Berkeley Rep. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I uh, still got deep family here. I have a sister that lives here in the city. A brother lives in San Francisco. Uh, another brother that lives up in um, Roseville, mm-hmm. outside of Sacramento. Yeah. Um, my, I just got deep, deep family here and, mm-hmm. you know, really long-lasting friends. You know. Yeah, and in your family, um, you sort of got a legacy in San Francisco around, you know, sort of social change and community development and investment in community. Um, is that correct? Yeah, well, my mother was always very active in um, just a lot of different uh, community activities, political activities. And, um, mm-hmm. I mean, it just I grew up, you know, around a, a person who was – just constantly involved and engaged in trying to, you know, make the make the little corner of the world she lived in a better place, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh I um I guess, you know, I may have inherited some of that. She was also an artist. She uh, uh was a dancer, choreographer, a dance teacher, you mm-hmm. know. And so I was always exposed to the arts and I think in many ways I have to credit her for uh, my current profession, because uh, you know, I think a lot of people in the world are artists. They're just not exposed and/or nurtured in that, so they may live an entire life and go to their graves without ever experiencing 
what they were born to do, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, I feel very fortunate. I had a, a mother who exposed me to it, and I had the desire myself to, to follow through with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I was reading that you had, like, a whole career before you chose, you know, the stage. So what was that moment that said, mm, this is what I'm going to do? Well, you know, actually, I didn't. I mean, I got my first job as an actor when I was 17. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. I mean, I worked in radio. Um, Uh, Even after I was an actor, I used to work for uh, KALW Radio. Oh, really? Um, Yeah. Yeah, the local NPR station here. Mm -hmm. Um, I worked there from, uh, God, probably 76 through 83. And uh, I started acting at 72. Mm-hmm. My first acting job, I was still in high school, in theater high school. <laughs> as a result of that job, you know, I didn't experience all the things that high schoolers experienced. Like, like I didn't go to the prom, I didn't graduate on stage, I didn't, you know, I didn't go to the senior picnic, and for very good reason. It's, I was performing six days a week. Mm-hmm. Wow! So, yeah. You know, I was already doing what I was supposed to be doing, and. I, so there was a, I, there was no need for me to uh, even deliberate on what I was going to do with my life. And in many ways, it was like it was already set. It said, okay, here's an opportunity for you. Mm-hmm. Here's a door to walk through. And uh, if you're comfortable walking through it, just keep on walking, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I remember when I, I see you in, in movies and I'm like, oh, wow, I know him, you know, when you were in a... <laughs> Uh, with Denzel and uh, Devil in the Blue Dress, and and then when I saw you as you know her Muhammad and Ali, and you know you've been in lots and lots of television series, and where where people see you now um, when they you know want to keep up with you? I mean, besides of course we're going to talk about Mingus Remix, but do you have a regular presence um, in a series on television now? No, not today. I haven't been doing that much television until very recently. Mm-hmm. Um, I uh, one of the last things I did last year uh, was uh, you know I think about this is that well, I worked with Robert Williams on his last uh, television show, mm-hmm. uh, uh, the Crazy Ones, uh-huh. and uh, that was just one of the last television jobs I had. That was like September of uh, 2013, and then. This year, um, I uh, just finished working on um, a new show that's going to be coming on AMC, which is uh, um, it's a spinoff prequel of uh, the show Breaking Bad. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just did three episodes of that new show. It's called Better Call Saul. So, uh, Say it again. That's the next thing, probably this season, uh, that you'll see me, you know, on. Um, I'm about to start a really, uh, really interesting um, uh, independent film in uh, in about three weeks called White Water, a segregation story from the South back in the early '60s. Based on a true story, mm-hmm. and uh, sort of reuniting with my old. Dear friend uh, Rusty Cundiff, uh, who uh, Rusty Cundiff, you may know him 
for he was one of the directors on the Dave Chappelle show. Mm-hmm. He uh, also did a film called uh, Fear of a Black Hat, which uh, uh, is a sort of a rap version of Spinal Tap. Mm-hmm. And he also did the film, which was produced by Spike Lee, called uh, uh, what's it? Tales from the Hood. Mm-hmm. The horror. Thing that was uh, actually fantastic, and so this is his first film in the pit. Um, well, I'm going to be I'm very excited about working with Rusty again. Mm-hmm. Um, I met Rusty when he was going to USC, and uh, you know, 30 years later, and three mm-hmm. children later, uh, he and I are still friends and still working together. You know, nice, nice. Very excited about yeah. that. Yeah. And what's the name of the film again? What's the name of, of the film again? Uh, White Water. White Water. Ah, oh, interesting. Yeah. White Water as in, you know, mm-hmm. segregated water fountains. Black oh. colored water, white water. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, White Water as if water has a color. Um, yeah, we don't want to drink water when it has a color. Something's wrong with it. <laughs> oh, wow, wow. Yeah, I remember when you um, you came through and you did the, uh, the one-man um, piece sort of looking at your travels uh, in Africa. That was really oh, yeah, phenomenal. Yeah, that was really good, yeah, for um, Culture Odyssey. That was right, 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 yeah, right. That was excellent. Yeah, and so, you know, we got, you know, royalty, and Mingus, of course, is royalty. So tell us about Mingus Remix, and you just look so much like him. You know, the setting of the piece, and you're going to have a live band with some of our favorite musicians, um, Cash Killian, Muziki, Roberson, and... Um, uh, Howard Wiley and I don't know the drummer. Oh my God, the drummer is uh, is extraordinary. Um, Dave used to be Ray Charles's drummer. Um, oh seriously? Oh man! Oh, yeah. Wow. Uh, Dave was with Ray back in the I want to say early nineties. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he played with Ray's big band on orchestra. He also played with Ray's combo and each. You know, he's a young guy for somebody to have done all of that. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, he actually was, uh, I met him, uh, he was the drummer for the Bahim Troop when I, back in the early 80s. Oh. So, <laughs> so he and me played together. Uh-huh. And, you know. Um, also, there's a gentleman who is my sound designer, and uh, also mm-hmm. he wrote the final uh, piece in the show called Last Ten Breaths. Mm-hmm. Um, David Allen, David uh-huh. Allen, who uh, just master musician, uh, sound guy. He used to have a group called Zed Formation, where which Muziki also recorded and played it. Mm-hmm. Um, very very talented composer, sound designer. Um, he and I have been friends since the age of twelve. Mm-hmm. Nice, nice. And. Uh, the director, uh, <laughs> have been friends mm-hmm. since 1977. Oh, really? You and Daryl to go, go back that far? Wow. Oh, yeah. like, it seems like a like a real tight, I mean, that you have these, like, real strong, long-term relationships with, you know, the uh, the, su- the supporting artists and director. That's, that probably does something for the production, huh? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, we unfortunately don't don't have the kind of time we need to really do what we want to do with it, but we are 
very happy to have uh, the support of Steve Jones over at the Wayne Hansberry Theater. Steve's been awesome in mm-hmm. terms of just, you know, helping pull this thing together. And uh, Mark over at the Wayne Hansberry also has been doing a fantastic job. Uh, so, you know, it's been a real... Uh, Steve and I go back. Steve and I did the Fruit Guards Island together back in 86. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, yeah, at the yeah. Eureka Theater. Oh wow! Oh Eureka. Okay. So this is a you know this <laughs> mm-hmm. is a family style uh, kind of performance that's getting ready to happen, mm-hmm. and it's it's not finished. Uh, um, you know, hopefully people are not expecting the complete finished, you know, product. This is basically the beginning. Uh, this is a uh, sort of a, a concert performance of a of a work in progress. And, oh okay, uh, okay. Nice, nice. So it's like a preview of a work in progress. Yeah. Yeah, oh, okay. we're sort of letting the audience in on the ground floor so mm-hmm. they can experience it. They may have some ideas, comments, and, you know. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's excellent. So so tell us about, you know, sort of Mingus and, and your connection with Mingus and, you know, why, you know, he called you to write this and how you're going to be channeling him. <laughs> Well, um, it's it's actually pretty simple. I mean, I, I um, you know, there are certain people that, uh, living or dead, you you connect with them, mm-hmm. um, and sometimes you connect connect with them on an intellectual level, and sometimes you connect with them on you know uh, a spiritual level. And uh, with Mingus, I think for me. I, I think I began to know more about Mingus after his death than his uh, while he was alive. I mean, you know, my mother was a fan of his, and, and my stepfather, who was a, just an extraordinary uh, jazz enthusiast, played Mingus. But Mingus and Monk were played in a different category than everyone else was playing. Mm-hmm. You know, they were my mother being a dance teacher, there was all kinds of music in the house. You know, classical music because she taught ballet. There was a lot of Tchaikovsky flying around there. Um, she taught Afro-Haitian dance, so there was a lot of indigenous Afro-Haitian music. Um, so there was, and my stepfather was just a jazz fanatic. Now, like I said, they had the, the sort of mainstays. They loved Miles Davis, of course, and, and Coltrane and, 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 and Gene Ammons and Sonny Stitt and Jackie McLean and people like that. But they had people like Monk and Mengus occupied a very special place in their whole, you know, their, their collections and then their appreciation of, I remember the first time I heard Mingus and Monk, my, my, my mother would sort of preface it so say, okay, now this stuff here is is progressive. Hmm. This is like, this is thinking, this is thinking people's music here. Hmm. And it was Monk. Hmm. And it was Mingus. And so for me, growing up around jazz all my life, Mingus occupied an even more special place than the, the giants that uh, 
you know, where I was introduced to. I mean, you think about it. I, I look at it, and I'm very fortunate to have the parents I had. They, you know, I looked as jazz musicians. To me, they were the highest expression of African-American intellectualism mm-hmm. without the pretension. They expressed the, uh, the penultimate intelligence of our community. And they did it in sound. Many of them wordlessly. They expressed uh, a memory, an ancient memory, and they expressed a current uh, condition, and in a lot of cases, a future hope, you know? Mm-hmm. And for me, Monk and, you know, of course, uh, Bird, Charlie Parker, but as composers, Monk and Mingus. They were writing their own music. They were not just, you know, great players in a band or with a band. Uh, like people said, Angus wasn't writing and playing tunes. He was writing and playing composition. Mm-hmm. He was a composer. He wasn't just a player. And for me, that exemplifies what jazz is, that he is the well-rounded 360-degree artist. And for me, as I look at jazz musicians, they are not entertainers. They're artists. They're artists like Picasso. They're artists like Rembrandt, like Da Vinci, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, Monk and and these guys, their names should be spoken in the same breath as, you know, Michelangelo. They are artists. They are great artists. They are not entertainers. And they clearly are not respected and compensated fairly enough in the marketplace today or ever. But it's, to me, I feel a great honor in elevating a great genius uh, to a world that may or may not have heard of him or would even have a true appreciation for what he was. He was a first instrument was cello, so he was just at heart a classical musician Mm -hmm. who at 17 started playing the bass only because he found out, well, nobody's going to pay me to play the cello. Mm -hmm. So his buddy, friend Buddy Collette said, we, you, you, if you get you a bass, man, you, we can start gigging next week. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened. But at heart, he was a cellist. At heart, he was a man who loved Bach, Stravinsky. So in his music and his craftsmanship, I mean, he's a virtuoso musician and player. But in that, Gunther Schuller said it clearly. He said he's the first third-string musician that I know of who successfully did it. And he means third-string matter of fact that he is a classical musician, he is a jazz musician, and he's playing both seamlessly, and he's creating compositions that are influenced by the blues and by Western European uh, composers, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it was a rather long-winded answer there, but <laughs> no, no. I mean, you could talk. You could talk. You know, I mean, books have been written about Mingus, so yeah, of course, <laughs> you could go on and on for sure. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I was just thinking about you know that that his um, you know he has a legacy in Southern California where you live, presently. Um, 
you know, his, um, I think his archives or something like that are, are at the museum in Watts, uh, oh. where he grew up. And, uh, you know, he's got, you know, the real famous autobiography beneath the underdog. And, you know, there's, you know, there's the, a group that, was com- that was composed of artists and they and they were they played Mingus music. That was all they did. And I don't know if they still. Um, oh yeah. Okay. There's a couple of there's a Mingus big band and there's a Mingus dynasty band. That's right. Both yep. out of New York. There mm-hmm. was Mingus and Marcus on the West Coast. Yeah, right. Yeah, hip hop. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, Musiki was the piano player for Bingus and Oh, that's so true. Yeah, yeah. And, um. And Howard played sax with him. Mm hmm. That's, that's true. Yeah. You know? Mm hmm. Oh, yeah. But, uh, that's another thing I want to introduce you to the world is that nobody knows about West Coast jazz, Central Avenue, and any of that. You know, very few people know that. And what we know is the Harlem Renaissance of the 20s, you know. But, what happened on Central Avenue on the West Coast, it, it happened uh, until the late 40s. It went from the, that renaissance that was sustained itself from the 20s to the, almost to the 50s, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, you rarely hear about that. I mean, they had an entire cultural scene where the black middle class uh, had a place to socialize, uh, you know, and in segregating America, it was a place where white people and black people could interact without too much uh, concern about the law in, interfering, you know. Mm-hmm. And so one of the stories I want to tell to you is that Mingus was a product of this environment. Mingus was a product of Central Avenue. Mingus learned his craft and creativity the playing on Central Avenue. Mm-hmm. Mingus... Uh, became a devotee to uh, Duke Ellington, and he first saw Duke Ellington when he was about 19 to 20 years old at the Lincoln Theater on Central Avenue. Mm-hmm. first realized that the bass was really his instrument. He said, I really, you know, I've switched from cello to bass, but it wasn't until I heard Duke's band with Jimmy Blanton on bass on a song called Jack the Bear. Well, as I heard that, that I realized the harmonic possibilities that lie beneath that instrument. Mm-hmm. And then two, three years later, Jimmy Blatt was dead at the age of 23 from tuberculosis. Wow. And Mingus had his job oh. as bassist in the Duke Ellington Band. Oh, wow. 23. 23. Dead. And uh, so all, you know, the history, Mingus is not only a singular artist, but Mingus is a singular artist that is important in the 20th century in terms of his interaction, influences, and the people he influenced. I mean, you know, one of the last things that happened before he died was he did a record where, uh, with Jody Mitchell. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you remember that. No, uh-uh. He did a, a, a record with Jody Mitchell. In fact, well, he didn't even do it. Jody Mitchell did the record. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's called Jody Mitchell Mingus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's fantastic. Yeah. It's absolutely fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
you know, and, and that came out of a whole other idea he had where he wanted to do a, have an orchestra play one thing and then have a combo play another thing and then have what he called the hillbilly singer read T.S. Eliot over the music. Hmm. And the hillbilly singer he was talking about was Joni Mitchell. Uh, she's, of course, not a hillbilly singer, but to him, that's what, that, that was what he called it, the hillbilly singer. <laughs> Oh, wow. Yeah. So, you know, uh, Lucas represents so much for me. He represents my own sort of broad and wide aspirations in life. It's like, you know, there are so many things you want to do in a, in a lifetime. And, you know, you don't know, ever know how long you have. But, mm-hmm. you know, Mingus was dead at the age of 56. Yeah, yeah. That is so amazing. And, um, and the setting is at Mingus's uh, deathbed, uh, January fourth, nineteen seventy-nine, um, and uh, which exists in the parallel universe of the Cosmic Note Jazz Club. And so, uh, so, so Mingus is sitting in a wheelchair, taking his last ten breaths before dying of um, uh, Lou Gehrig's disease. Um, and, and you write that in his crossing over, he must come to terms with life, death, art, and the blessing and burden of blackness in our white-dominated society. And so I was just wondering, um, you know, as as a writer and as an actor, um, did you have to live, do you think that you had to live a bit uh, of life before you could portray this particular character and, and other characters? Do you think that as an actor sometimes... Um, you know, sort of the timing is right for a certain piece, you know, that you want to embody. And is this one of those cases? Well, I think it's a little both, yeah. I mean, I think that uh, in terms of acting, it's just like, you know, uh, to use an alcohol uh, analysis, if you got wine or you got, you know, I don't know, bourbon or scotch, Mm -hmm. it's really better when it's aged. Uh Uh-huh. I mean, there's a process in aging things, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think with a human being, that there's a process for us uh, growing and, uh, and uncovering ourselves. And I think the better, the more we uncover about ourselves, the easier it is to portray that in others. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I think that it's a little both. It's the timing is right, but uh, the age is right. And, uh, Experiences of life I've had are that are right to uh, to try to interpret this in a way that reaches out to the world. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so this um, this world premiere um, of uh, your uh, Mingus remixed. Um, tell me about the title and uh, and this weekend um, the performances um, this weekend. Um, Friday the 5th and Saturday the 6th um, over in San Francisco at what was formerly uh, Zim. Um The Creativity, um, is it Creativity Theater? Is that the name of it? It's such a good yeah. I'm not yeah, it's called, um, yeah, it's called the Creativity Museum. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah, 221 4th Street at Howard. Um, uh, Friday is 7.30, Saturday you have two performances, 2 and 7.30. So, um, uh, since this is the world premiere, it's a work in progress. Um, sort of what what are you looking for so that we can like you know you have like the full piece and then we can see all of it. Um, 
what's that going to take and what are you looking for this particular weekend? You know, what are you looking for audiences to uh, to experience and then what are you looking as as an artist to get back? Well, I, I think I'm just interested in all, all of actually performed um, part of it. And um, I'm trying to just put a cohesive uh, version of it up on its feet so I can see, you know, where I have to go with it. That's really what it is. I mean, um, I, I hope that people are not uh, expecting this um, to be the, a world premiere in the sense of the world premiere of the of a final product. Mm-hmm. This is sort of like a, um, uh, as Delroy, the director, puts it, a concert performance of a work in progress. Mm-hmm. And the lot some of the dialogue has been uh, cut for for this performance. Uh, we don't have all the video and stuff that we're going to have in the larger production. Okay. Um, we have uh, the band, you know, a live band and everything. But there's still stuff that we're working on, and this will really be the first time. It's like uh, kind of a, a, you know, people will see the first, I consider it the skeleton of a, you know, of an entity that will live in the future. Okay. Uh-huh. Yeah. Nice, nice. Are are you um, looking to um, uh, to give birth to the work this year? Well, you know, uh, I don't know. Hopefully, I uh, I don't have a timetable on it because I, I'm uh, I'm trying to do it right. I mean, uh, I I did a reading of two of the pieces uh, last summer, uh, mm-hmm. summer 2013, rather, in New York at a place called the Slipper Room. And it was there at the slipper room that Delroy, who came to see it, said, you know, um, hey, man, if you do this, I would love to direct it. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, so he, he saw, just based on those two pieces, mm. he saw something that he wanted to be a part of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, at a friend's memorial service, I read another piece from him. And uh, I'm, I, I see the reactions that each piece gets, and I'm very curious to see how together these pieces, as a you know a linear cohesive narrative, how they hang together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm sure it's going to be simply fantastic because you know you're you're a really fine fine writer. Um, I mean, really, really good and an actor, so it should be really wonderful. And um, you know, to sort of uh, to 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 see you know Mingus um, in a way that we're familiar with, in a way that we're not familiar with, should be really great because you know all these this this these um, words of wisdom come out when a person is making his or her transition. So I'm sure with your character. It's probably going to be a similar situation, um, you know, as he reflects on his life. Um, 
Yeah, she'd be, she'd be really interesting. And looking forward to the music, that should be really nice as well. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Wow, well, congratulations, and thank you so much for bringing it here <laughs> to the San Francisco Bay Area. That is so awesome. Yeah, I'm very, very happy that this is the first piece sunlight is going to be shown upon it. Yeah, yeah. And uh, is your is your mother still still with us? And your father? No, actually, she passed away at old age. She passed away the week before we started. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. yeah well, but now she's with you um, all the time. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's your mother's yeah. name? You mentioned her so much. I want our audience to know her name. Uh, her name was Jamie White. Janie White? Jamie, you know, like, uh, like Jaime. Mm-hmm. We used to call her Jaime. Oh. <laughs> okay, cool. And your dad? My dad was Fred Henley. Fred Henley. Okay, nice, nice. Well, cool. I'm sure they're both really proud of you. Oh, yeah. They, <laughs> uh, they, were, very, they were proud uh, virtually before they left, and uh, they, they, they even playing a big world about it. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Especially now that I have a 7-year-old son. Oh. And the uh, taxes are looking out for him, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nice. 7 years old now. <laughs> uh, I said 7 years old now. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Awesome. A skateboard man. Okay. Okay. <laughs> well, I like the education man, too. He's on I was second grade in the uh, Spanish immersion program at Edison Elementary in uh, Santa Monica. Oh, that's great. Yeah, Spanish is a great language, uh, particularly in uh, what was formerly Mexico, right? <laughs> yeah. He's better than Spanish speaker, so it's, uh, mm-hmm. he's right there in the pockets, you know, speaking and writing. That's excellent. That's really excellent. Yeah, that's wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah, we want to wish you uh, safe travels on your way north and a great rehearsal and looking forward to seeing you this weekend, um, Friday. Uh, and uh, I'm going to be there, and people can catch you Friday, uh, 7.30. And Saturday there are two shows, uh, again, uh, 2 o'clock and 7.30. Uh, all the shows are at the Children's Creativity Museum, or the Cre- Creativity Theater at the Children's Creativity Museum, formerly Zeum, that's the place where the carousel is, <laughs> uh, 221 4th Street at Howard in San Francisco, and the tickets are 25 to $50. So you take good care, uh, Shabaka, and looking forward to seeing you this weekend. Oh, I want to thank you, and uh, you guys have a great time out there. All right, sure. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Uh, that was um really, really wonderful um uh conversation with one of my favorite um artists, Shabaka, Barry Shabaka Henley, and um that was a really wonderful production. I don't I didn't actually ever get to see the the full piece. Um, I don't know what happened. I don't know if I missed it or if it didn't come wasn't ha- didn't happen here in the bay, I'm not sure but be great if you could bring it back. That would be really awesome. So we're going to close with um, uh, the uh, interview um, and special broadcast with um, uh, James Imes, uh, Director Daryl V. Jones, 
and um, uh, and the um, uh, the set designer Celeste uh, Motor Ray um, uh, sort of talking about uh, Kill Move Paradise as shotgun players, as I mentioned earlier. So I don't know if you're going to be able to hear all of the uh, all of the uh, broadcasts because. That's all. It was a special broadcast, and I think we spoke for about an hour. And uh, so, enjoy what you can, and the rest you can you can check it out uh, in the archives. <laughs> all righty. Thanks so much for joining us. Take good care. Look forward to um, uh, having you join us again for another edition of Wanda's Picks on Friday, um, the last Friday in July. Oh my gosh, we're getting ready to hit head on into the fall season. August is next week. So, peace and blessings, everyone. Enjoy. I remember the age I learned I was scary. Eight. I reached out to hug a teacher, and she flinched. Then she remembered who she was and broke herself into a hug that was so brittle, I thought it would cut my skin. This is Kill Paradise, written by James Imes, directed by Daryl D. Jones. The play is about four African-American young men whose lives are violently cut short at the hands of law enforcement and as a result of the institutionalized fear and loathing of black men in America. Kills of Paradise is a beautiful and smartly written play about the experiences of black men in America, experiences that historically haven't been well represented on stage. We watch the young men try to understand where they are, what has brought them to this place, how they can help one another, and just why they are so fearsome in the minds and hearts of America. One of the sources of inspiration for the play was the murder of Tamir Rice, who was a 12-year-old young man killed in Cleveland. The killing of unarmed African Americans, both male and female, in this country continues at an alarming rate. Bringing awareness to this ongoing tragedy is paramount in moving us forward towards ending the crisis. We see the young men present all of the facets of their humanity. They play, they fight, they forgive, they joke, they bond, and ultimately, they transcend. Brother? What? I'm your brother. Biologically? Spiritually. Hmm. Psychically. That makes sense to me. I thought so too. I think everyone should come see this play because they're going to laugh and you may cry a little, but I think that's okay. I think it's also an opportunity to honor and celebrate um, young black men and uh, those who are living and those who were taken from us too soon. In the most tragic moments in life, there's always humor. It's an irony, but there's always humor. And humor has been one of the things that African Americans have relied on to, to overcome. So it's, it's funny, it's moving, it's heartbreaking, but it's life.
Good morning, and welcome to Wanda's Picks, a black arts and cultural program of the African Sisters Media Network. And that was a teaser, really wonderful trailer, um, uh, sort of highlighting shotgun players in association with association with Lorraine Hansberry Theater's production of James um, Imes' Kill, Move, Paradise, directed by Daryl V. Jones. And... Um, yeah, it's currently on stage through um, August 4th, and we are so excited to have in the studio. Um, we have the um, the set designer, Celeste. How do you pronounce your last name, Celeste? Martori. Martori, right. And we have um, we have Daryl V. Jones, the director. Good morning, Daryl. Good morning. Good to be with you again. And I think. Yeah, you know, you're a regular. And I think we have um, the the uh, playwright, James Imes, in the studio. Is that you, James? I don't recognize the prefix. I'm not sure. No? Is that you, Stephanie? Hmm. I think you what just have me and Celeste. <laughs> oh, no, actually, I have three people. I just don't know who the person is. It's like, oh. Okay. Um, no. Someone's um, ghosting. So anyway, someone's ghosting. Okay, no problem. <laughs> Maybe they'll unmute their phone and tell me who they are. Because um, <laughs> the playwright is going to be joining us. But I just want to congratulate you on a wonderful, a wonderful production. It is just ah phenomenal, and I and I've had an opportunity to see it twice, and ah. I don't know. I might be able to get myself to come back for a third time. So if you maybe could tell us um, about uh, this this wonderful collaboration, uh, Daryl. Here's our guest again. Let's see. Oh no, they're gone again. Um, yeah, tell us about the collaboration, Daryl, between the two two theater companies to to produce this work. And it's not the first time that a work has been um, staged at Shotgun um, by uh, James Imes. They they actually uh, did his white, I believe, last season. That's correct. Um, so, yeah, they did white last season, and white was directed by M. Graham Smith, um, and that was a successful production. Um, I had actually identified Kill Move Paradise um, as something that um, I presented to Shotgun um, uh, before white, um, but uh, um, as it worked out, um, it wasn't the right time for it. And so um, Patrick uh, eventually uh, read the script and he was just blown away by it. I, I think Patrick, truly the artistic director of Shotgun Players, is one of those people who um, read the script and it seared his soul and it immediately sort of made him change his behavior changed the way that he interacts, even in walking down the street and, and passing an African-American young man. But Patrick loved the script, um, and um, when, I became, when I came on board with, uh, as acting artistic director for the Lorraine Hansberry Theater Company, um, I thought this is a wonderful time for these two theater companies that have made... Um, uh, plays that deal with um, our social and political situations, current and social, current social and political situations. They are emphasized diversity, 
and racial and social justice. And I thought this was a wonderful time for these two companies to come together on a project. And so we did. And thus you have mm-hmm. Kill Move Paradise. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't think the Bay Area has ever experienced a play quite like this one. It's just so, unfortunately, timely. Oh, my gosh. Well, the unfortunate thing is this is not the first play that I have um, directed, nor I, I, it probably won't be the last. I hope to God it's the last, but it's not the first play that I've dealt with that has um, directed that I've dealt with. It's not the first play I've directed that's dealt with the unfortunate and the tragic slaying of African Americans at the hands of law enforcement or rogue white vigilante groups. Um, and uh, so, yes, it's it, it's timely now. It was timely in the 1920s and the 30s, and it's time for us to really come to arms. It's, it's, the play is a call to arms. I hate saying arms because that's like the wrong word for this, but it's a call to action, um, and it invites us to stop observing this tragedy and really try to participate actively in resolving it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly, certainly. And um, so our third guest has come back into the studio. Is is that you, James? This is me. So sorry about that. Oh, super. Awesome. Because I was looking at the prefix like Philadelphia. Okay, that could be him. <laughs> yeah, that's me. I know, I know you've heard the comments because I see I saw you going in and out, and we're so happy to have you join us to talk about this work. Oh my goodness, wow! I mean, like controversy must be your your um, I guess uh, philosophy in in playwriting because you know white. Like oh my goodness, and now kill move paradise, and what a title! Kill move paradise. The three words all together. Like hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I wanted the the title of the play to to sound like a video game, um, mm. and have that sort of quality of you know like Grand Theft Auto. You know, I like playing video games, which is probably a problem, but um, it's a way to relieve stress. And mm-hmm. there's something about the the way that those games are titled that sort of you know make them seem like they're this like fun thing, but then you know you're confronted with this violence inside of the game um and so i wanted the play to sort of do that um to sort of bring people in like oh that's flashy and then when you get in it you have to confront the reality of what's inside of the thing that you're playing or the thing that you're consuming mm-hmm. right right yeah yeah so we've um been been talking um about uh just sort of the impact of the work um uh i know probably um uh, well, I know as a, as a person, you know, in the audience, uh, I love theater because I love being present, you know, in 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 the theater because the impact is like, the, well, the experience is visceral, and and the impact is immediate because these are people, you know, um, on on the stage. They're not. There's no distance between me and them, 
um, even if I'm not super close to, to the stage and I happen to have gotten really good seats. I was just two seats from the front of the of the theater. And in this particular play, it's really cool because the audience is a part, is, is a character. You know, we're America, and we watch. <laughs> so, yeah. so that was really <laughs> awesome. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It was really important to me to, and, the, and I think this is something that I started to play with in white, but it's, it's sort of grown to maturity in this production or in this, this play is um, having the audience be implicated in what's happening on stage so that they can't um, leave feeling like the work that they need to do for social justice, for equity, for equality is is done by going and viewing the play. Like I think sometimes people feel like, oh, I want to go see this play that was topical and I've done some work. <laughs> when you really haven't done any work. So I want to put the audience in a position of feeling like, well, this was a step towards something that is slightly incomplete and I need to find a way to complete it in my life. Um, and so that's my hope is that it causes people to continue to grapple with it even after they leave the theater. Mm-hmm. James yeah. and I have never yeah. met. Good morning, James. Good morning, Carol. Uh I, I, it's a, it's a, it's an, it's an undeniable pleasure and uh, or privilege. Not, it's a privilege to direct this play, and uh, so I just wanted you to know that. And um, because it, it, you know what he's saying about the audience being engaged and the way that he's written it, it sort of propels them to not be able to just leave the theater and say, "Okay, well." Um, well, I did my part. I went and saw it. And in af- after each show at Shotgun, after every performance, we have a an audience conversation. Um, and the woman that's leading these conversations, Kathleen Ridley, who's a well-known uh, Bay Area actor, um, she does a wonderful job of of pointing out to them that it doesn't stop here. It does not stop here. She, she asks them every night, what are you going to do now? What are you going to do differently? How are you going to make a change? And she points out that even if, if it's something as small as when you see an African-American young man in your neighborhood and you don't know who he is, maybe the first thing you shouldn't do is call the police. But maybe the first thing you should do is go out and introduce yourself. Um, and say, you know, hi, welcome to the community or whatever. But small little steps like that um, make a difference. And then we also talk about larger steps, like educating people about this, because a lot of African-American history, not, no, I take that back, a lot of American history was altered and swept under the carpet um, in order to clean things up a bit. But we need to know the truth. We need to know the truth so that wound can heal. We need to uncover it and let it heal. And it heals through exposing it and then picking action. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, w- I was wanted to, um, uh, to talk a little bit about, about all of your directions I hear. Celeste mentioned at opening night that there are a lot of directions around 
the set and what it looks like. And I presume that in each of the different iterations or different productions, that interpretation varies. And uh, and I'm sure you've seen photographs and things like that of this particular set, which is like, wow, it is amazing. Uh, Celeste really did, it's really monumental. And Celeste, I just loved just your talking to me um, opening night about about the give and take between you and, and Dara around the vision for the setting or the set so that this story can play out. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. And then, James, sure. you could join them and talk about sort of what, why all those directions and what was in your mind. And I know as as an actor as well as a direct, as a playwright, and then, Daryl, you're also – you know, a director and an actor, <laughs> and and I don't know, Celeste, if you're also, um, if you are also on stage as well, you know, as designing, you know, uh, pieces for stage. But it's interesting, you know, the fluidity between the different roles in theater that at least two of you all have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, I've been on stage in the past, um, but <laughs> I'm a full-time <laughs> designer now. Um, but what, what I do remember from being an actor is um, how I felt on stage um, in a set and how I interacted with a set. And so um, when I design for a piece, I'm always, I've always have heightened awareness of um, what I'm pushing and what I'm challenging with um, unconventional, unconventional ways to design a set. So I think a lot of the commentary or, um, and a lot of the issues with what Daryl and I were running into in some earlier designs um, was that there, weren't, there wasn't a lot of space. There wasn't a lot of flat space. Um, and so I think we challenged each other early on um, to be like, well, why do we need flat space? Is it more interesting to have these guys stand um, askew or a little bit um, not sure-footed the entire time? Um, so, yeah, I think pushing those boundaries of like, well, uh, we're, <laughs> we're, uh, we're going to push this, this in a certain way that might be a little bit uncomfortable for people or definitely traditional theater um, is what we were interested in. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, yeah, a little bit unsure about um, how they're mm -hmm. standing or like a little bit unfamiliar with, with this new place that they ended up in. Um, I will say that James actually, um, hi James, this is the first time I'm speaking to you as well. Um, yes, James is also, gorgeous. I just want to say that. Oh, thank you. Um, James pretty much, I love, I love to say this, but James pretty much designed the set. Um, <laughs> his stage directions um, for the set were uh, amazing. Um, they're so specific yet open-ended that it could be interpreted in many different ways. So for Daryl and I, um, we latched on to a few motifs throughout the script, um, a couple being um, the history repeating itself. So we've seen over hundreds of years, possibly thousands of year, years, um, the cyclical nature of um, black death as either like tribute, sacrifice, or martyr. Um, so this issue has lived on throughout slave years, to current day 2019, um, and we wanted to represent that historically. And so one image that we um, were pursuing was the slave ship. Um, and so through all these different motifs, we wanted to abstract it. And so what was saved from that motif was the parabolic shape. So I like to call it um, a cross section of a slave ship. Um, and so the, the stage ended up in this sort of U shape, 
um, to be really derivative of what um, what a what a slave ship would look like if you cut it in half and broke it open. Um, and the two other themes which we were exploring was the idea that black lives, black bodies, um, and are treated sort of like uh, disposable. And so we were really interested in the idea of the sewer um, as black lives getting like flushed down the toilet and into this underworld. Um, and so that's how the entrances ended up the way they did. So there are these tubed, piped, capped openings through which the actors hurl themselves into. There's also a manhole um, through which light comes up through the floor. We were interested in sort of inverting um, orientation it's like, well, where's up, where's down? I don't know. <laughs> if you were standing underground and looking through a manhole, you would see light. Um, and so we were interested in creating all of these like topsy-turvy um, orientations so that when actors were exploring the space and trying to get out, they couldn't understand which way it was up from down or even which way to get out. Um, and then the last thing we were exploring was the idea of embedding religion into our set. Um, and so that's where the main hole um, upstage, the big one, we call it the Oculus, came about. Um, because there's a lot of, the, I mean, religion is peppered throughout the entire script. Um, and so I took a lot of inspiration from ancient Roman and Greek architecture. Um, the, Pantheon, the Pantheon, the Parthenon, they all have these um, huge oculi at the top of their structure. And that's made to represent um, a direct line from Earth to heaven. Um, and so we put that at the top and we had the youngest actor enter from there and eventually all of the actors escaped from there as their final transformation to the heavens. So we paid homage to thousands of years of architecture, um, architectural representation to sort of allow user um, users, <laughs> allow audience members um, something to catch on to from a religious point of view. So you... You gave away a lot of surprises there, but it was good. It was good. We, <laughs> we, 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 uh, uh, the, yeah, the set's amazing. And, uh, um, I think Celeste has just, uh, from our early conversation, she just, uh, she dug deep and really got this. And it's so powerful. I'm going to, um, out you, Celeste, that there have been a couple of moments when, she actually said, what have I done? I've created this set that, en that entraps these young men. They have no escape. And uh, uh, it's so visceral that um, it, was, it, it hits us all, every, every single performance, um, because the set is that it, it, it's, it's so powerful in just taking it in, just looking at it. Yeah, after mm -hmm. the first um, reading and after the first couple run-throughs, I told Daryl, I was like, I can't, I can't watch this play. I can't come see this play. Because um, the brilliance of James' writing is that the audience feels um, complicit through the whole play. They feel complicit in, mm -hmm. uh, and, and helpless in, in the fact that these black men are stuck in this space. They just don't know what to do. And so for me, um, as, as being a set designer, I felt a heightened level of, not even complicit, I was an active participant in their entrapment because my only involvement in this play was creating a bowl that they could not get out of. Uh, so it was, yeah, it was a really weird experience to me. I was like, oh, dear, <laughs> um, what did I do? Yeah, so James, um, maybe uh, if you could tell us about uh, 
you know the um <clears throat> the set that holds these 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 characters as well as maybe you just talk a little bit about about the characters um and uh you know their ages and their experiences and i i i really like the um <clears throat> uh the character that um uh eddie um is it eddie yeah Eddie uh yes, Ewell, Eddie um, Ewell. Isa, Ewell. yeah, he yeah, he um uh he portrays because he says that he's been there before and I'm like and I kept on mm-hmm. thinking I misheard him and so then when I saw it again I'm like, No, he said it and I and so I asked mm-hmm. him, Um, how is that possible? You only die once, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'll I'll talk a little bit about the space and then I'll talk a little bit about the characters. Um I I mm-hmm. when I was I wrote this play really, really quickly. I think I wrote the first draft of it in a week. And I had never written anything that quick. Um, And I wrote it immediately sort of on the heels of um, hearing about Tamir Rice and feeling like, feeling angry, but also feeling like really disempowered, like feeling like um, walking down the street, going to the grocery store, sitting in a movie theater, like everything felt... um, off balance, and so it's like, well, what does that feel like? What? Is, how do you? How, can you? Can you make that emotional feeling physical? Okay, what does that look like? And I kept coming back to this idea of a wave that's sort of frozen, which, in a weird way, is kind of what America feels like. It feels like this place where you, everything architecturally tells you that you should be able to rise in it, <laughs> and yet <laughs> it, it is so steep that it's so severe that you keep falling back down and into the, the bottom of it um, unless you know the trick or you know the key or you have access um, and so that's where the, the shape um, came from and in all productions there is some variation of like a rise which I, I, I think you know if you have that that's that's sort of the heart of the play um, and it's different in every space what I love about this set is um, is the fact that there are these like places from on high that people can come in from, and then there are places down low. So there's like a lot of variation. So there is like the less that there's not a sense of like this is the way. Um, you have to sort of like exist in the space to try to figure out what is right, what is correct, which is a lot of what it feels like to be um, a person of color um, in this country right now. Um, in terms of uh, Issa, Issa is the, what Jesus is called in the Quran. Um, mm-hmm. And so he's a little bit of a Masonic figure, this sense of like coming back over and over again, but that every time he comes back, the space is sort of new and foreign. And then what does that happen when this, you know, that also calls back to like Greek mythology. You think about like um, Atlas rolling the stone up the hill and then it rolls back down. Uh, you know, it, there's something in that repetitiveness of constantly experiencing something that I felt like was universal to um, black people in America, uh, Latinx folks in America. This sense of like, you feel like you make some progress, but you find yourself right back at the beginning again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and and so why why the um, the various ages and um, and why yeah just um, you've got mm-hmm. you know four four um, 
four four men, well, three men and one boy. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's like, why do you have to put the boy in there? Like, really? I mean, it's just like, I mean, it's already bad. And can it get worse? Like, mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I, wanted, I mean, you know, this um, violence against black bodies happens no matter your age, mm-hmm. um, no matter your gender. Um, it, it 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 affects all of us. Um, it's like the the one regret of the play is that there's not a woman in the play. I, I really regret that. Um, and the play sort of moved well past my ability to to change that. Um, and in my other work, I, I try to make sure that I don't make that mistake again. But um, yeah, I wanted them to not all be coming from the same point of view. Um, we have a very young child who seems to be coming from a a, um, a, a very sort of pleasant, you know, living inside of youth, uh, which a lot of young black men don't get to experience. Um, and then you have uh, Issa, who's like older and has like seen a lot and had a lot of experience and, and his repetition in the space extends that experience even into uh, the afterlife. And then you have two sort of uh, sides of, you know, a coin with um, Griff and Daz. Um, and I feel like most playwrights, their voice is in one of the characters and Griff is the closest to the way I think and the way I move through the world and how I react to things. Um, so that he's there, but then there's also dad whose life experience is a little different from mine, but I can find the empathy in that. And, and I think that that is a life that is valuable and worthy of celebration and documentation and um, examination. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm not sure um, with regards to, um, the directions, but you know, there, there's, um, uh, there, there, there's theater with. The, I mean, there's a story. There are stories within the story, and and the uh, the actors put on a play for us. Um, mm. And uh, you know, if they could, it would be in blackface. Um, but we get it, and um, and you know, they sing and they mime, and um, but I think. Yeah, and then and then there are some really powerful moments, and and they're sort of really well choreographed by uh, Laura Elaine Ellis, um, particularly when uh, the names are I called. Have to step in. I, I have to correct you. The choreography is oh. is co choreography. It's it's me and oh. Laura, and and I only say oh, that. Oh, sorry. I, it's all right because I'm only saying that because uh, Laura and I have mm-hmm. worked together many many times, and. Uh, so mm-hmm. and and we are very we are, we love sharing that responsibility and title. So I just wanted to point that mm-hmm. out. No, this is even better because she's not on the air and you are. <laughs> and <laughs> and and the in the and uh, the scene you know where uh, and I wish I wish Stephanie had been able to join us because it's so guys the lighting is so beautiful in the work. Oh my goodness, it's like another character, and the water coming pouring. You know, sort of representing you know the lives, and 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 it's sort of re- it's sort of a parallel to the paper coming out of the machine that's with all the names on it, and and I don't know if this happens, um, James, in other productions that you've um, 
uh, you've learned about or you've experienced. Um, but in this particular production, um, Eddie, uh, you all told me who plays Issa again, he said that uh, at one of the um, talkbacks, there was a, a mother and a family there who had lost a loved one to violence, and they added this person's name to the list. So now they call that name, too, when they read the names. Yeah, every production of this play uh, that I've been um, conscious of, because I think that there's some that I don't know are even happening, um, which is really exciting. Um, I, I, at some point, I get an email that say that all right, if we add this name, um, mm. and of course it's like horrific and awful, but I always say yes, honor the people um, in in the community that you live in. You know, I think that's even in the script. Is you know. Um, if there are people that you want to honor, you should add their names to the list. And that way the play is sort of a way to extend the community out into the community. Um, that's my hope. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. So, so Daryl, talk about the choreography and, and, and that beautiful um, moment um, that I'm speaking of. I mean, it's horrific and it's also beautiful, just the way it unfolds. It's really lovely. So I think you're referring to the naming of the names or the reading of the names mm-hmm. moment when um, there's a point in the play where um, Issa um, reads off the names, uh, a very long list of names of African-American men and women. And there are also some trans people on the list now as well. I don't know if there were originally, but... Um, he reads up this list of names of people whose lives were taken by law enforcement of some kind in this country. Um, um, and, uh, you know, I believe James says in the script, and I, I'm, I'm trying to remember this clearly now, but I, I, it's something about it, it, it shouldn't feel like, um, James, can you help me? Cause I do, it, it, it shouldn't yeah. feel too much like a memorial, memorial or, or a memorial, right. I believe. And right. uh, am I correct, James? Is that what it says? That I can't is absolutely remember. correct. Yeah, okay. that's absolutely so, correct. So how that hit me was, and, and we did a reading of this last summer, and um, I during the reading of the names, I just I had the guys sort of take in this, this, the tragedy, and they were just moving through the space and kind of finding rhythms and stuff and beating on their chest. Um, and so that, that led me to sort of take, um, a, and, and Laura, when, when I first met with Laura, we both sat down and we said, you know, this, this should be like a cleansing, a ritualistic mm-hmm. sort of, um, a, a, a base sort of an African ritual of, um, of a cleansing of the spirit or clean or, or, a, or cleansing of for the dead, um, an honoring of the dead. So we based the choreography that the two other characters are doing as this river, this river of water that starts as this small little stream, but by the end of the name is, is expanded to basically almost cover the entire stage. We wanted it to be rooted in Africa.
African movement, African tradition, and African ritual. Um, and at the same time, though, we wanted to, we didn't want it to become so emotionally intense that we lost focus of the names themselves because they, they, that's the, you know, the, that's the part, the most important part of what's going on. But we wanted to support it with African ritual and um, uh, give the actors a space and movement that um, movement that clearly reflected the anguish um, of hearing these names without pulling away from it too much. And at the, so I, I actually, I, I also did the musical direction. And so we started with, you know, we, we had, we have this sort of song or this sung, um, sung almost like um, work chant um, or field chant in the beginning of the reading of the names. And by the end, we return to sort of an African beating, um, almost as if the beating of the heart, it's to remind us of the beating of these hearts. And at the end, these hearts start to slow down. So that rhythm continues to slow down as Issa continues to read names. And then he just ends with the and, 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 as all the hearts have stopped beating. And so that's a little bit of the, inspiration and how that that moment came together for us mm -hmm. yeah yeah it's really really beautiful definitely you know we feel the libation you know for these these um, ancestors you know those that are sort of in this portal and then those that have made their ascension and and just I don't know I just sort of think about the um, the rupture of a life you know, like you're, you know, you're in a park playing, um, uh, you know, uh, an imaginary game, you know, chasing aliens. <laughs> and the next thing you know, it, you're, you're, you're sitting in this place with no furniture, uh, wondering mm. where you are and who these, who these people are. And your mom told you don't speak to strangers, right? Mm. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I, I think it's important to say too, though, that. Um, as tragic as the situation is, James has done such a wonderful job in writing these characters in the fullness of their lives. And, and that's the sad part, because what we see is we see these guys up there that are just so full of life and potential. And, and you know, they could, they could be, they're visionaries. Um, and yet, you know, we know that they're dead, but what we see in the play is we see them in the prime of their lives, and we see all this wonderful come, you know, they fight, they, they, they love each other, they bond together. He's written such wonderful humanity for each one of these characters, and there's great humor and love and joy in the play as well. It, it, it takes you through the entire range of human emotion. But, um, I, but I think that's really, really important because it shows that we are not or that African-Americans are not just the stereotypes that people are used to seeing, but we are so 
more. And um, the play is so visceral that one almost loses the sense of that they're watching the actors, that, uh, that it seems like you're watching, you know, real people express, um, go through this on stage. And I, I think that's also in part because every single one of those actors at some point in time has had an experience of being racially profiled by the police. And we talked about that very early on. Um, every single one of them, and including myself, we've all had that experience of being mm -hmm. at one point in time af afraid that we were in, caught by law enforcement completely innocently. We, we were innocent, but we were pulled over or thrown to the ground because one of them was actually thrown to the ground um, by police mm -hmm. and, and um, for being in the wrong place at the wrong time and the wrong color. And, um, but the, as tragic as that is, the play manages to tell this story, but it tells it with a great, a, a great amount of, of joy, not joy, a great amount of love. And, and, and at the end, there is a, well, I won't say too much about the end. I won't say too much about the end. But um, <laughs> we have the, the men, the, the, uh, I, I will say that it's an ironic ending, particularly in this production, it's an ironic ending. Hmm. <laughs> uh, um, Celeste, um, I was wondering if you want to uh, maybe comment, uh, maybe something uh if, you know, whatever you like. I was thinking about, uh, you know, these these men and uh, young men who who um, portray these various characters. I was thinking about Trayvon Bell as Daz, uh, Dwayne Clay as Tiny, uh, Eddie Wallace we've already mentioned as Issa, and uh, Leonard Jackson as Griff. Um, yeah, and then and then there's the audience. We're in it too. That's right. Um, yeah, I think you said. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, it's all you, Daryl. Go ahead. No, I, I was going to say I think she said, addressed the question to you, so you're on. Um, okay. Yeah. Uh, it's really it's a really interesting um, interaction that happens, um, especially. I don't know if this is a set question or not, but it was interesting thinking about the threshold. So what uh, what divides the audience from um, these men? Like, should it be anything? Should it should it just be blank? Um, but that line of confrontation, I think, was a really important um, thing for us to experience or think about as designers. Um, and especially Stephanie Johnson, uh, um, she did an amazing job with lighting the audience, too. I don't know if everybody knew this, but the audience gets a little special light um, throughout the whole show, which... No, uh, we do. Really oh, I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah, it's a self-examination <laughs> um, that I think is, is rather subtle. Um, and, yeah, it's just it's really uh, just a whole range of emotions. Um, my brother I and mean, a lot of black men in my life have had the same experience where they've been racially profiled. Um, and so, I mean, every time I see the play, I just bawl, cry. <laughs> it's... it's um, it's something that it's very it takes you through the whole gamut of of um of understanding how we experience 
um, or our unconscious bias towards these black men. And I think the four black men that are on stage um, do a really, really great job in representing um, a broad array of, of how black men um, represent themselves, are presented, and the differences in um, in the cultures and week that we grow up in. Um, there's many, many kinds of blackness, and I think that James did a, James and Daryl and all of the actors did a great job um, portraying all of those differences. I have to say that Celeste is also. She just mentioned that she leaves bawling and crying, but she's also the most vocal uh, laugher in the audience as well. <laughs> she gets all of the humor, and uh, she's a great audience member. I love having her there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, during the uh, the previews um, uh, last, I guess it was the week before last, that Sunday um, at the um, – Freedom of Movement Center, um, Uncle Bobby, um, Oscar Grant's father, um, Grant, excuse me, uncle, um, was hosting a um, uh, every year um, at the time when um, I guess Meserly was sentenced. There, they have a program, and so there was a program that that Sunday, and I I saw the I saw the play that Friday, and uh, and so at the program there were, um, you know. Um, Wanda Johnson, Oscar Grant's mother, and other women, other mothers who had lost sons and, and I guess maybe daughters to um, uh, to state violence, and and I'm like, oh no, I can't go to that. I'm thinking, oh goodness gracious, after seeing this play, mm-mm. and and so when I saw the play again uh, this past Friday, I'm like, who who can I invite? I just think about all the all the people I know. Who have lost loved ones to state violence and to uh, intercommunal violence, and I'm thinking, and and so <laughs> Kathleen really, who who hosts, who facilitates the discussions, she said, oh, invite invite some of the white people, you know. <laughs> so anyway, I was just wondering if if anyone, um, you know, um, presently uh, in the studio, if if you have similar kinds of of. Uh, Difficulty in wondering, okay, who, you know, is is in an emotional space to be able to entertain this topic. You know, it's like, so anyway, um, yeah. Well, as as I will just say briefly that I think it's a play about America. It's, a, it's not mm-hmm. a black play. It's not a white play. These are, they're not black. We tend to make these black or white issues, but it's an American issue. Um, and so, um, you know, everyone, everyone needs to see this play. It is rare that I, that I feel that I, there's a play that is, is so um, right on point right on target that entertains, enlightens, and educates in the way that this play does. And it's such an important message. And, um, and it's done, and I must say so myself, in a beautiful production. And so that's, that's the benefit of art. Art kind of sears your soul surreptitiously. 
And so I think that this is important. It's important for the country. And I believe that it, this play is for everyone. So much so that I, I'm, I was thinking yesterday, wow, we put this up in the summer when all the schools are closed. Um, mm. So I, I want to start lobbying shotgun to bring it back again when schools are open so that we can get the student audience. Because it's mm -hmm. about educating the youth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I really like it that um, Tiny is such a brilliant young person. He has like a really high IQ, and and he you know has facility with the language. It's just those moments are really really special and and fun uh, when you you know you speak about the humor of the moment, uh, despite the tragedy that brought these men together. Exactly. Mm -hmm. James, do you have thoughts about uh, about this? Yeah, I think everybody can walk away from the play. Um, hopefully, uh, I caught a bit of the conversation earlier. We were talking about arming the audience uh, or arming people versus uh, empowering them. I think it's both. There's a there's a director in New York, Nigel Smith, who talks about. Um, you know, in theater, when we make political theater, it feels like we're preaching to the audience because people who come to the theater, by and large, um, left-leaning, we think, we assume. Um, we, we assume that they share our politics. Um, and, and so there's a pass passivity in the way that people engage with art that is inherently political and emotional. Um, and so my hope is that the play is doing this thing that Nigel talks about as like arming the choir instead of preaching to the choir. And it's the thing where mm. people come to the play and they feel like they have something that they can they can take into the world with them when they leave. Like that's uh, that's more of a useful thing. I mean, I think that's why the play, and I don't want to spoil the ending for anybody who hasn't seen it yet, the play ends in a way that feels like catharsis. But there's something about the way that it ends, and this has been true in every iteration of it that I've seen, and I've only seen two full productions of it. It's, it's happened in a lot of places, which is exciting, but also m makes me really sad because people still, and I wish that this play would become obsolete. Um, when this play becomes obsolete, then we have moved ahead in a really spectacular way because we will be dealing with having the conversation of mourning people who are gone way too soon for nothing. Um, but the thing that is consistent in every production is that people grapple with how do we end this play because it, it ends with a song. And that feels musical theater-y. Feels, it feels like the thing that it's not. But there's something about those bodies in that context singing the, the words that they're singing that rattles people. And I'm not sure what the chemistry is there. Um, the music is different every single time. The staging is different every single time. The lights are different every single time. And every single time it does something to the people in the audience. And I think a part of it is there's been no fourth wall the entire time. And people are in the same space with these people and then these people leave them. And so everyone has this very real sense that usually at the end of a play when everybody bows, we feel good. 
But there's something about these people at the end of the play going their way and you going your way that feels uh, real. Um, and I'm, I'm really proud of that. I don't, I don't, I'm not a playwright that knows necessarily when I'm doing a thing that is a thing, if that makes any sense. Um, but, but I sometimes I'll see a play like you know White is another really great example of getting into seeing a production of that and going oh I had no idea it was doing this thing that's really exciting <laughs> that it does this thing that I didn't know that it does and Kill Move has multiple mm-hmm. moments of that and um, because the action of the play is really just in the the lap of the audience there's no way for you to escape it I think that is an experience and that shared experience with the people that you're sitting beside is so really important and goes, goes straight to the heart of why I think theater in general is important is that you have to confront the, the vertical, the, the, the horizontal conversation between you and the people you're sitting beside that you don't even know you're having. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Daryl, I don't remember the song the men were singing when at the end. <laughs> well, that 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 that's that's uh, that's sad. But uh, they they did what they sing is they sing. Um, In my father's house, there are many many men. Oh yes. Um, if it yes. were not so, yes. I would have told you. In that same sequence, mm-hmm. they sing. Ezekiel saw the wheel way up in the middle mm-hmm. of the air. But it's part of that whole last sort of montage that happens. When right. I, oh, we mm-hmm. can't, I don't, I, this is such a spoiler alert. We can't. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah I won't, I'm not going to say too much more, but yes, they, they did sing at the end. Um, but it's part of a whole. Oh, no, yeah, I remember now. Happened. Yeah, right. yeah, it was really beautiful. Yeah, I remember now. Um, wow. Yeah, yeah. Um I was wondering, could you maybe send me, um, Daryl, the um, um, the songs that um, are are in in the piece, um, since they, you know, they're specific to this particular production. I think, um, if I if I um, did James correctly, they are specific to this production. I actually wrote some of, most of the music, but Ezekiel saw the wheel is nice. actually. Um, a traditional um, melody, but mm-hmm. um, um, can I send them to you? Sure, we'll figure out a way to do that. Okay, yeah, because I was just thinking when I heard Ezekiel uh, saw the wheel, because my my great grandfather's name is Ezekiel, and I were and I and I grew up in the Nation of Islam, and we sort of had these um, these stories about the mothership and and the wheel. Uh, Ezekiel's right. will, and then I think about the people who could fly, you know, like away from here, you know, like mm-hmm. we we didn't have mm-hmm. to be bound by the miseries of bondage that we could, you know, we could transcend, we could elevate, and and so I always think about that when um, um when I think about that song, and yeah, I do remember it now, but um yeah. <laughs> Thank well, that you, for, you know that's for, funny wow. that, that the the myth of the people that could fly, you know, the slaves that that. That mm-hmm. on the during the Middle Passage, some of them, you know, had wings and flew away. And then even after they got there, the idea that those slaves that managed to escape to freedom, there was the myth that they had wings. That was that was an image that came to me a lot in thinking about this play as well. So, 
um, mm-hmm. uh, particularly when we get to the end and with the Ezekiel wheel imagery and the four-headed angel that um, that is described on that wheel in some accounts. So, yes, I'd be happy to send you the list of the music. Oh, super! Thank you. Yeah, and and uh, Celeste, I know I know you have to go, and, and James, I know you're on vacation. Um, so uh, <laughs> I was going to ask you all, um, you know, and you and you could respond like that if you like, uh, Celeste, um, and uh, and Daryl. Um, uh, about you know favorite scenes or whatever, um, but I also wanted to ask you if if you want to do this other uh, question is if you could maybe talk about your artistic ancestry as as we conclude, um, sort of um, you know your artistic ancestors like as as inspiration um, or as continuing the work um, or why you are doing the work that you do as artists. Who wants to go uh, first? Sure, I, I, I'll, I'll go. Uh, <laughs> uh, I um, the very first play that I wrote that I chose. Well, the first first play that I read, excuse me, um, that I chose for myself that I picked off of a shelf to read was Seven Guitars by August Wilson. And mm. uh, that play has always stuck with me because, of course, in high school you have to read like a Hamlet and Julius Caesar, and I think I read The Crucible. Like you read plays, so I knew what a play was. But there was something about that play. It's a memory play, one, which is was like jarring for me because I always thought plays had to happen in like real time. And so you suddenly have a play that is a memory, and it's a collective memory. Like all of these people are remembering all of these things together. Uh, and Vera is remembering very specifically what's happened to her. And I thought it was really beautiful. And I was like, oh, I want to, I, I think that if I were to write a play, it would, it would feel like this. It wouldn't be regular. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no say to regular. But <laughs> it would be, it would, it would mess with the form. And before I even knew how to talk about form and content, um, I knew that. And then in college, the next playwright that I encountered that really, um, sort of shaped my thinking about plays was um, Susan Miller Parks and the early plays like the America play and betting on the death commander, those plays that were so um, were written essentially in sound instead of in text. Like she writes how these people should sound. And then the actors performs those sounds. And through that, that's, synthesis of the actor we get the language and in, in the musicality that she's really famous for now uh, and she's a playwright that I've continued to read um, I grew up re- reading comic books um, and so that's another big piece of my um, artistic DNA really is is world building um, I want to create a world that sort of sits just askew of our own in the way that comic books do. So that way we can have a way to examine what we are dealing with with a little bit of distance. And I think that's how you learn, oh, this is how I'm screwing this up. If you have, you need just a touch of distance, I think. And then hopefully a play sort of closes that gap so that by the end of the play, we're all sort of sitting in the same room together. Um, so that, that's me. I also grew up in the church, which is like high, high theater. So <laughs> I love that too. <laughs> um, I, it is. I'd like to, 
Yeah, I'd like to just jump on real quick. Um, James, I am the exact same way with magical realism books. Um, oh, growing man. up, my mom, yeah, my mom gave me a book uh, to read every week, and I uh, just turn it turn it into her every Sunday. So I spent most of my childhood and still most of my present day life um, just in magical realist worlds. Um, and so I, I find that that is a the practiced way that I've been, I've been conditioned to make worlds inside of my head um, just from text my whole life. Um, and I love it. I love, I love occupying these spaces that, um, like James said, are a little bit askew. They're derivative of our world, but something's a little bit off. Um, and I think that's how we get to examine, yeah, our place here. And as far as examination, I, I know you wanted us to talk about ancestral, ancestral artistry. Um, I'm first-generation American, and most most importantly, I'm the first person in my family that has the time, space, and luxury to um, recognize my blackness and therefore examine it. Um, first one to go to college, all of that stuff. And so I find that um, there wasn't a lot of knowledge around black American anything passed down to my family because they haven't been here. So the work that I take um, is very much an examination for myself um, into my black identity and the shared black consciousness um, and how we can put that up against a mirror or shine light through it um, to understand what's going on. Um, a playwright that I work with, that I'm working with right now, Christina Anderson said that her primary oh. line of inquiry is, um, yeah, yeah, it's beautiful. Um, her primary Christina. line of inquiry is that uh, black, <laughs> the black experience in America is science fiction. Um, and so yeah. that really stuck with me in, in how I create my sets. Um, putting black bodies up against a white background is very intentional too. Like she's never felt blacker when, unless you're against something white. Um, so yeah, I think a lot of what I do is um, examination um, of history that I grew up in, but wasn't necessarily um, passed down or explained to me um, because my, my family came over a little bit later. Um, and yeah, I, I really enjoy world building too. That's, that's all I do. I love creating impermanent places um, that are referenced to our world and are definitely grounded in um, precedent from our world, but allow you to also examine, um, like everybody, allow, allows everybody to examine their experience um, on this planet as well. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. So, Celeste, yeah. I know you have to go. But I was wondering, before you take off, could could I ask you um, if you could tell us sort of where, you know, like where is your ancestry? You mentioned that you are first generation um, here and the first mm -hmm. um, with with the opportunity and the time, I guess you said, to examine blackness, the first, mm -hmm. you know, to graduate from college. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, my mom's family is from Guyana, which is um, – mm. It's a small sort of series of nations in the northern part of South America. So they're culturally Caribbean, um, and then they were colonized by the British, have a lot of Indian influence. Uh, so my family specifically was taken, we believe, from West Africa, and instead of coming to the U.S., they came to they, – they got um, shipped to South America um, mm, and then mm -hmm. found their way here. <laughs> yeah. Right, yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, thank you. Yes, yeah, a lot of lot of rich rich African history in uh, Guyana. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, and and also American, like what happened there. The you know the um, around the colonialism and destruction yeah. of of the black government there. Really, really terrible. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. then Jim Jones, People's Temple. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ah, wow. Well, thank you so much. It's been really wonderful speaking to you, and uh, and safe travels. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I'm going to bow out. Um, thank you, James. Thank you, Daryl. Thank you, Wanda. Um, hope to talk soon. Oh, Bye. Thanks, Celeste. Yeah. Take care. Thank you, Celeste. Take care. Okay. Daryl. Yes. <laughs> your, um, your uh, I guess, artistic ancestry or your favorite scene, um, whichever one you want to go. I hope you do the artistic ancestry. <laughs> uh well, um, see, I'm 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 a li- I have a few more years on James and Celeste. Um, uh, they are, but like James and Celeste both, um, I grew up. I, I've actually been doing theater my whole life. I directed my first play in elementary school, <laughs> and then <laughs> actually had the had the chutzpah to um to to go to local churches and uh, other schools and ask them to let us do the play, and they did. Um, it was You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. But I say I grew up in the theater, and I started pretty much in musical theater. Um, uh, I'm a singer and an actor and, and a dancer. Um, but because I, 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 I grew up just studying, acting, music, and dance, it was all one to me. I never saw any huge separation between those disciplines. So when I find a theatrical piece where music and movement and and text are working together to create this fantasy world, those are the plays that I'm really drawn to. And um, because I, I hear rhythm and text, I see movement in text. I feel, I hear, I see intention in movement. So it all just works together for me. Um, as far as one of the most important mentors that I had in my life, and I'm so fortunate to have had her, is Glenda Dickerson. Um, mm-hmm. Glenda was the first African-American woman to direct on Broadway. Um, she was a feminist and uh, way, you know, way before her time, or the, and she was also on the forefront of African-American theater in the 60s and 70s. Um, so she, she, she instilled in me a great love and pride in setting the record straight in telling our story from our point of view. And there were times in my life when I complained about being pigeonholed as, uh, they only hire me to direct the black plays, blah, blah. But now I, I feel like this is my calling. This, this, you know, the idea that we are sent here, not for ourselves, but to do service, um, plays like, Kill Move Paradise, I feel, are are my service to the community. And um, so, uh, yeah, so that's a little bit about, you know, why I do it and how I've done it pretty much my whole life. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, thank you so much for um, you know, um sharing uh Glenda Dickerson's um uh I guess name and work and relationship with you to, you know, with our audience who might not know her work. I just looked her up and was like, Oh man, wow. Glenda Dickerson was iconic director, folklorist, adapter, writer, choreographer, actor, black theater organizer, and educator. And she was born in February 9, 1945 in Houston, Texas, and made her transition January 12, 2012 in Michigan. Yeah. Right. Yeah, she's, uh, she was really a, a, a pioneer. Uh, um, mm-hmm. For a while she was at Spelman. She was the head of the theater program at Spelman, and I met her when I was teaching at University of Michigan. We, we landed there at the same time. Uh, and, um, she, she, um, yeah, she just really was the first, I don't think up to Glenda, I don't think I had had specifically an African American theater teacher or mentor, um, because I had gone to schools that, you know, that had predominantly white teachers. So I, I, I landed at university of Michigan as a professor, but Glenda, uh, as an assistant professor, but Glenda was a full professor, and she really just she taught me what it is to be an African American artist, and uh, mm. I am forever grateful. <laughs> nice, nice, yeah, yeah. It's sort of like you know, I'm thinking about you know the character Issa, and and how you know um, just over you know the way he just sort of holds the space literally, and and just has this really wonderful compassion um and patience um you know the the group the men and the boy become uh but they're already connected but they it becomes intentional you know their relationship to one another they have, they sort of develop a true brotherhood over the course of the conversations and and them being able to come to grips with where they are in that moment and and the memories that they have of how they got to the, got to the place where they are and then the shared memories about being black men you know in America and then having America sort of reflecting that back at them you know because of the presence of America in the play as audience as character it's just this is really really brilliant James the way you did this <laughs> thank you <laughs> and that's why he won yeah. that Kesseling Award. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is really yeah, brilliant. Many more to come. Well deserved. Well deserved. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Wow. So I'm going to let you all, you know, get back to your lives. But I was wondering, um, are you working on anything that our audiences should be looking out for? Um, James, any plays, you know, sort of that you're working on presently, um, anything opening? Are you going to be in something that we can attend? Um, um, and then, uh, Daryl, um, do you is there life after um, Kill, Move, Paradise? Um, are you working on something else, like, after this um, that you can uh, speak about? I am. I'll let James go first. Uh, well, I am... Um I have a there's another production of Kill Move in Chicago at Timeline Theater. Oh. Um I think in mm. the spring. 
Uh, Steppenwolf mm-hmm. is doing a production of an older play of mine called The Most Spectacularly Lamentable Trial of Ms. Martha Washington, which is about mm-hmm. um, uh, apparently Martha Washington's reader slaves before she died. And it was in George Washington's will that the slaves would be freed upon her death. And a lot of scholars think that the reason why she freed them is because she thought they were trying to kill her. Uh, so I wrote a play that sort of goes, well, what if they really were? <laughs> so that's what that's for. <laughs> um, oh, that also funny, great. Where is that going to be? You know, uh, at Steppenwolf Theater in Chicago. Um, okay. And then that's that's it. I'm directing a few things in Philadelphia. Um, I'm directing a play called My General Tubman, which is a new play. Uh, and mm. I'm also directing um, the Philadelphia premiere of uh, Alicia Harris's play, Is That Is, at the Wilma Theater. Mm. Wow. So uh, General Tubman is about Harriet Tubman? Yes. It's about uh, Harriet Tubman and mass incarceration, and there's magical realism, what? and I'm really I'm jazzed about it. Yeah, it's great. It's a world Ooh. premiere play by uh, Lorene Carey, yeah. Oh, when is that? Is that fall or now or? It it'll be in the winter. It'll be in uh, February. Oh, 2020. Naturally. Oh, I'm gonna have to make my yeah. way to Philadelphia. It's gonna be cold there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, wow, that sounds awesome. Whoa. Yeah. Wow. Nice. Nice. Well, we can have another conversation with the um, uh, the playwright. Um, you know, maybe in January. <laughs> Yeah, that'll be fun. Mm -hmm. And then the other ones in Chicago sound great. Wow, Martha Washington, that sounds fun. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's a fun play. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, cool. And do you have a website so people can, like, follow you and just keep abreast of things that are going on? I do. Uh, My website is uh, www.com. James Imes, and that's J A M E S I J A M E S dot com. Okay, cool, super. All righty. And Daryl. Well, uh, let's see. First, I want to ask James to make sure to to send me some of his new plays because I'm or old, even old plays. I just want more James Imes work. Um, oh, but, okay. Uh, uh, and um, yes, I've got uh, what's coming up. I am acting in um, the Rime of the Ancient Mariner that is going to be done by at, at done at Word for Word, um, oh, the Word nice. for Word Theater Company in San Francisco at Z Space. Um, mm-hmm. So that starts rehearsals in a couple of weeks, actually, uh, and goes up in October. I'm also, okay. you know, still the acting artistic director of. Lorraine Hansberry, so we are also preparing to open Single Black Female that will be directed mm-hmm. by A.J. Mitchell. Um, yeah, and that is. opens, yes, he is, and that opens in October. Uh, okay. And then in December, I direct um, at Center Rep um, mm-hmm. in Walnut Creek um, the um, the Devil's Music, The Life and Blues of Bessie Smith. Um, so that's that's a play with music. And uh, mm-hmm. 
And uh, that, I don't know what's after that. I, I, I need a vacation after that, I think. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, actually, after that, the Lorraine Hansberry will then do Intimate Apparel by Lynn Nottage. Um, oh, nice. So we, a, a lot going on, a lot going on. Mm-hmm. Right. Wow, yeah, beautiful, wonderful theater. Oh, yeah, okay, well, I'm going to have to put all this in my calendar. <laughs> Absolutely. Wow, it's been a really... It's been a really wonderful conversation. Gosh, um, James, uh, Daryl, you know, it was really wonderful. I'm so happy Celeste could also join us before she jets off to Singapore. Um, (laughs) Yeah, really, really wonderful conversation. And, um, yeah, looking forward to, um, I might be able to, well, i I definitely going to let people know about, you know, attending the play, and I might be able to get back one more time. But thank you for the work, James. It is it is just really, you know, uh, just really develops our character and and our our capacity for for compassion and and empathy. Um, you know, these characters and this work that you do. Well, thank you for spreading the word. I appreciate it. Sure. And Daryl, you are just a phenomenal director and actor and choreographer and musician. And thank you for for your you know ability to take. Um, uh, you know something that could be static and 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 make it a world that we enter because we trust the kind of worlds that you create you know with the work that you feel called to so thank you for recommending this wonderful work because who knows we might not have seen it well you're most welcome and thank you for the service that you do to our community here um, it's very important so thank you Oh, you're welcome. Well, both of y'all take good care and have a wonderful rest of the day. You too. You too. Take care, James. Okay. You too, Daryl. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So we are going to rebroadcast 